how are we going to pick the winner? I'm kind, I'm kind of leaning if we don't do random generated number, which is fine. I'm kind of leaning towards Mike Mike McElhaney. Yeah. Who's <laughs> the nuclear disaster? That looked like a modeling <laughs> bomb exploded <laughs> on his bitch. So the question about his was, do you give it to someone that will never be able to see it? Maybe it'll inspire him to because they, they look <laughs> so nice. Will it inspire him to keep his, his table clean? Yes. Okay. So first off, Mike is one of my best friends, and I am is he really? at, yes, he lives about <laughs> two hours away from me. I love it. There's no improprietary stuff going on here because you guys called it and I didn't even say a word. <laughs> I had no hand in this, and this is all them, and I can't agree more. Greatest guy in the world. This guy, yeah, anyway. And he's flying to Vegas with me. Actually, we're flying to Vegas together. I'll definitely dogpile on him. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Plastic Posse Podcast. I'm Scott Gentry and this is episode 25 of the Triple P. Also joining me is a cast of very talented modelers and great guys, TJ Holler, Doug Smith, and John Bonani. How you guys doing? Pretty good. I'm doing well, thank you. I'm hanging in there. And how are you, Scott? I'm doing great. We've been a little busy like we posted on our Facebook page trying to get all the... uh, stars to line up for IPMS national since we'll be out a week. So we got to get some uh, work done ahead, but doing really good. Speaking of that, let's talk about what everybody's been working on. TJ, what have you been working on? I recently finished a 172nd scale M1A2 Sep Abrams uh, from Flyhawk. I've been leaning really heavy into 72nd scale armor lately. I've got like a whole bunch of kits now. It's really fun. It's very challenging. Um, but I think if you pick the right kits, it's it's definitely manageable. Some are better than others. And then I all I ended up giving that model to the superintendent on the job that I'm working on, who was a tanker in the army that drove M1A2 Abrams in in Iraq, I believe. So that was pretty cool. He was he was really touched, and he was like a <laughs> it's like a little like a little uh, giddy schoolboy. Like moving the turret around and ele- elevating, depressing the gun, and then he was like, "This is the driver's hatch. They have the driver's hatch on here. That's where I sat. That's that's where I always was." <laughs> it's like, yeah, and and the coax has got a coax on here too. He's like, "Oh, and the lo- and the loader's uh, two forty nine is there too." He's like, "Wow, this is so cool." And uh, another inter- another interesting point that I'd like to bring up is because I I weathered it. I went kind of restrained restrained on it, but a lot of people, I'm sure everyone sees in the groups, loves to say. Real tanks don't get that dirty and real tanks don't do this, blah, 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 blah. So this one was relatively weathered and I made a comment to it about him. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, oh, this weathering looks really good. I was like, yeah, does it does it look like yours? He's like, oh, no, this is way cleaner than mine. Mine was mine was <laughs> terrible. I was like, uh, thank you. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> you know, I noticed, TJ, you posted some photos of that in a couple of groups online and People were asking you about how many models that you've gotten done this year. You know, I think this is what, number 14 for you? It was not including my Warhammer 40,000 stuff, which has not been much, but there's been a handful of things done. But yeah, 
four, 14 so far. Yeah, which is just incredible. But anyway, you gave you gave some pointers. Uh, uh yeah, I don't I don't remember who it was, but uh, he he pretty much asked me how I'm able to do it, and and really what I explained was I build good kits, I don't get bogged down in minutia, and I keep limited color palettes, especially when it comes to weathering. As like like most modelers and, and paint, frankly too, you guys have all seen my huge rack of different paint and weathering products and i've kind of been taking the the martin approach that he did on the his crusader where he limited pretty much to like three colors three different things that's what i've been doing a lot lately and it does help because you have you pick the colors ahead of time you have them right there and those are the ones you use it's like on the abrams i used one wash and just did different intensities i used two different colors for staining and streaking i I use them both i use streaking grime and then streaking grime for American vehicles, both by MIG, and I use those for stains and streaking. And then for the the dust and the dirt, I use a, a couple of MIG enamels too. That that was it. I found that you're just able to work more efficiently instead of like, oh, you know, I should add this color, and you reach over and you're like, oh no, it'd be really cool if I had this color too. Just pick a pick a color and use that. That's that's pretty much it. It's really interesting how consistent that is. You know, JB has talked on this podcast quite a bit about slammer builds, you know, and when you're bogged down into a great big project, you know, working on something to kind of keep your mojo, either either build it back up or keep your mojo going, you know, doing slammer builds. And then when we did that 48-hour group build for Models for Heroes, you know, Doug was able to build a Fock Wolf 190 and 148 scale by Tamiya and get the entire thing done in 48 hours. So that's... Way more impressive than anything I've done. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think you mentioned starting with a good kit and then planning out your colors, not going too crazy on your color palette. John's talked about with Slammer Builds kind of making strategic decisions. You know, Doug, when you did that 48-hour build, I think you were in airbrushing within, you know, minutes of the, of the <laughs> clock starting. That was my plan. Um, that's how I play. I do a cockpit. I paint the parts first and then I put them together. And, and so as soon as, as soon as we got the go ahead to start, I went over and I put my, uh, I don't know if I primed that cockpit because I had 48 hours. I think I just put the cockpit interior color right on it oh, yeah, and started you get to go a, from there. You get away with not priming cockpits, I think. Yeah. You're never going to touch them once it's together, you know? Right, and you can hardly see him anyway. So, John, what about you? I mean, planning seems to be a big part of your slammer builds too. Yeah, you know that's and that's it. You know, it's planning all the way down to the paints, like TJ said. You know, grab a handful, don't get overcomplicated, and then just execute. I think that's the most important thing: is always keep moving forward, blow through it. You know, not every model has to be a competition model, and to be honest. It's going to spend more time in front of you, in front of your friends, than it will ever in front of a judge. And I think as long as you are satisfied as the end product is, that's all that really matters. And I and I think as TJ has proven that you, you get 14 builds done, you feel pretty damn good. You can carry that momentum you know, forever almost. I mean, good Lord, 14 builds, you're feeling good. You're posting new content all the time on Facebook, Instagram. You're gathering more followers. I mean, it's just all really working towards you know just building your hobby and then you know ultimately growing your hobby with with your friends so i think it's been really impressive if anything i'm super jealous because uh, i've done jack squat these last couple of weeks so i'm i'm sitting on the sideline just hitting likes and loves and 
commenting because it's uh, it is inspiring and it's really good. But back to your question, uh, Scott, you know, just keep it simple. Have that palette ready to go and it execute. Well, and I mean, it's effective. I mean, when you give it to an Abrams crewman and he's like, you know, kind of blown away by it, I think you've succeeded on your project. Yeah, I was, I w- might have been more touched than he was because I'm, I get appreciation for what I do from you guys, which I value, you know, immeasurably. And from strangers on the internet, it, it's great. But, you know, I like all of that and that makes me feel good giving a a model of of something that someone spent a considerable amount of their their time in you know especially doing the job that he did where he did it and he's like wow and he looked at me he's like i love abrams <laughs> clearly you know he has fond memories of the time he spent in the army serving our country driving around in this what does what that thing weigh? Like fifty-two ton behemoth. Like it's huge. It's a big vehicle. They're they're massive, and that was just it was really cool that like I could tell he he deeply appreciated it. And then then he was like, well, I guess I'm gonna have to start building models now. I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> got, got him, him. Yeah, got him. <laughs> yeah, I think you bring up something really special there, TJ. And I haven't done it specifically for a service member, but I have given models away to friends. But there's a guy in our club, I'll, I'll say his name, Bill Dietig, maybe some of our listeners know him, but he, he does that a lot where he'll build a model and give it to either that pilot or build a series of models around a unit and then donate it to a museum. You know, I, I just want to talk about this personal story. He he built the Kosciuszka Squadron. They are a Polish squadron that flew, I believe, World War One or, you know, slightly before World War Two. And he built this series of, of models around that history and he connected with their air attache who was in who was in the United States and he hosted him at his house. But then he was actually invited to a museum in Connecticut where he donated that and had some of the veterans' families there. So I can definitely understand where you're coming from in that regard, where it's who cares about, you know, putting it on a table and a judge looking at it. That's what really this hobby's about. That's what really brings satisfaction and and really a meaning to what we're doing at the end of the day, you know. It's a, it's a little bit more than just a hobby when, when you can personally have that story shared with someone who doesn't even know the hobby. I think that's incredibly valuable and, and an important lesson for all of us. When he was looking at it, at the you know it's tiny. Anyone that's held a 72nd scale armor kit, it knows they're small. And even though the Abrams is large, it's still small. And he's like twisting the turret around. He's like pointing all the different hats. He's like, this is where we put the fuel. Like, this is like the engine hatch. And He's like, yeah. So, like, when at one time when I was in training at Fort Knox and we were driving around on the course, the tank in front of us, its engine blew up. He's like, and I don't know if you know this, but these things are powered by jet fuel. I was like, I did know that. He's like, it was crazy. It's like no one got <laughs> no one got hurt because you know the the panels blow off to prevent catastrophic damage. And he's like, I got to stay. I the, I got out of my tank and I stayed with the crew. And then the recovery vehicle came. The I think it's M eighty eight. I think that's what it is. And then he was like, Googling pictures. He's like, this is what it looks like. I'm like, that's pretty cool. He's like, oh, it was awesome. He's like, dude, they had that, they had that tank fixed in like three hours and it was ready to go. They just dropped a whole new engine in it. He's like, there was a lot of flame though. It's like, I can imagine. <laughs> nice. Well, Doug, what have you been working on? I've got a few things on the bench. Um, I'm finally trying to wrap up that uh, T3485 we started for the group build way back in October. Scott hooked me up with some uh, frile tracks 
and I've got them all assembled and on the model. I have to pull them off to weather them up. And, uh, but that's a lot of fun. I love those frials. That was, that was cool. I mean, I know it's time taking, but I I mean, it's really time consuming, but I, I, I just parked myself in front of the television and watched some shows while I was drilling out the holes and putting the pins in. And I mean, just keeping my fingers busy and uh, the fi- the final final product is amazing. So I'm down with this stuff. I love it. It makes tanks a little less dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I also I started putting the marbling and black uh, over the black base on my the mandibles of my Millennium Falcon Perfect Grade, which uh, is turning out really good. It's looking pretty sharp. Oh my gosh, does that take time? Because, I mean, it's all done by hand. I don't have any of the mass to help with the marbling. I just did it all by hand, which took me about an hour and a half to just do those two parts. But I'm very happy with how it looks. And I started screwing around with my speeder bike again. So I've got primer on that, and I'm ready to try to figure out how I'm going to weather that one up. But So now I've got three three models like under construction right now. So on that speeder bike, are you going to do the traditional brown... Return of the Jedi scheme or a more fantastical whatever scheme? I'm I'm going to do it brown. Return of the Jedi style, but I'm gonna weather it up, probably take some some armor weathering techniques into into consideration for it. For chipping and streaking and all that stuff, because I, I just think it's appropriate for that kit. Oh yeah. The the speeder bike's so cool. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with it. Cool. Yep. Uh me too. <laughs> It's going to, yeah, it's going to be awesome where the power plant pieces are, you can weather those completely different than the brown panels and it's just begging for rust and soot and carbon. Yep. Yep. That's my, that's my thought. JB, in between uh, all the things you're dealing with, what have you been working on, if anything? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I'm working on one little project on the side uh, for someone, but other than that, you know, I started a new job this past week. Put up the house for sale. Um, we have an open house upcoming this weekend. So, but yeah, other than that, it's just been been following a lot of stuff on Facebook. But in terms of bench time, it's been nearly non-existent. But I hope to uh, once this dust settles over the next week or two, and maybe we sell this house and I get settled in the job, I can find some time to get back at it because I certainly have some projects that I'd love to get done before nationals. So, um, which is only I think what a little over thirty days away. Yes. Crazy. So I, I'm certainly excited. I I might even be working there a little bit. As I mentioned, I just started this job and I, I want to do the right thing. So uh, I do want to go. Unfortunately, I work remotely right now before I move. So I think we'll be able to make it happen. That's it, Scott. Sorry, it's lame over here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did get quite a bit of modeling done in a short amount of time. I got both of those little Taycom Maz trucks into primer. So those are completely primered and ready for paint. And then in addition to that, I got some primer on uh, the SU-76M that I've been working on, got that into primer, worked on mounting a resin spinner on my Spitfire for the group build. And then I pulled out a Shelf Queen, a Dragon 135th scale Type 95 Hago, and I put down uh, the first color on it, uh, just the base color. I'm going to do a dark shade and a light shade. I'm going to try a new experiment where for a 
a three-tone camo, I'm going to go in a single color, go dark and light, then mask it, and then do that progressively rather than color, 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 and then go back and weather it. We'll see see how it turns out. But I've got a bamboo color down. And, uh, you know, I've done, been doing a lot of research for the last couple months to find a scheme. And I think most people model them with the soft edge camo. And based on the photos I have, most of those Imperial Japanese Army Hagos that I've seen have hard edge camos. And so that's what I'm going to do. We'll see, see how that's going. But it feels good to be uh, working on the bench. So get a, getting a little bit done. So that's good. All right. Here at the Triple P, we've been planning and recording like crazy. We're getting ready for Nats and we're very excited about it. When this episode drops, we will be about three weeks out and looking forward to it. Uh, First Nats is a podcast and for most of us as well. Um, John, you're the only one, right? That's been to one? I believe so. Well, we're going to duty. We're going to pop our cherries this this year. So, <laughs> <laughs> we uh we are also rapidly closing on 1 year as a podcast. We want to thank everybody that's been supporting us. We are preparing a very special episode to celebrate this milestone. So, stay tuned for details on what we have in store. Thanks, Doug. We are really excited about our first year. And this isn't just hype. Our anniversary episode will definitely be one of the po- one from the posse that you don't want to miss. We are also very excited about this year's IPMS Nationals, as Doug mentioned, and we are looking forward to meeting old friends and making tons of new ones. So please stop by and see us. If you are planning to be there, please make sure that you take time to talk to us. We'll have a little table. We are also recording content for future episodes, taking pictures, and getting to know the fellow posse members. We will have our own table at the show, and we will be there each day participating in all of the events. So please stop by. Plastic Posse are proud to be sponsored of Tankcraft. Nothing can ruin your day or your Tankcraft cutting mat like spilled liquid cement. Tankcraft has the solution, the glue base. Milled from solid 6061 green anodized aluminum, this thing will keep your bench top looking smart and spill-free for years to come. I've got one, and I love it. The combination of weight and sticky rubber pad on the bottom make them extremely stable. They even come with an optional insert to accommodate most major brands of square and round bottle cement. Pick one up with their beautiful probe modeler mats and start your next build on a bench to be proud of. Remember, Tankcraft products come with a 30-day warranty. And don't forget the Plastic Posse exclusive offer. Use the code POSSE15 at checkout for your 15% discount. Head on over to tankcraft.com. That's tankcraft, T-A-N-K-R-A-F-T.com and order your very own Tankcraft glue base and cutting mat. It just looks better on the bench. Well, guys, this is pretty cool. We get to announce the winner of our first ever Plastic Posse podcast giveaway for a Tankcraft 12 by 18 mat. In episode 24, we asked listeners to send us photos of their bench along with why a new awesome Tankcraft mat would help spruce up their bench. And we had a lot of great entries. And while there was definitely some benches that needed some serious upgrades, because <laughs> holy cow. <laughs> so we looked at all the entries uh, we talked about them as a team, and we decided as a group on our lucky winner. So without further ado, congratulations to Mike McElhaney. You are the winner of the Tankcraft cutting mat. So, <laughs> Congratulations, Mike. Dude, you seriously need a bench upgrade. I mean, that was well done. <laughs> so, We're really hoping that this keeps your – this is an inspiration to keep your bench cleaner. Yes. <laughs> That that was so when I was like, I think we should pick Mike. 
I think it was Doug was like, man, should we give it to someone whose bench looks like that? And <laughs> my argument was like, well, yeah, because the tank craft mats are so cool looking. Maybe he'll want to clean up this disaster of a, a work area. And I thought I was bad. Holy crap. Oh, and I just want to let everybody out there know that John abstained from the vote because he actually knows Mike. And he's over here in the corner, gagged and bound. So, Doug, take off the gag and let John have at it. All right. I tell you, I tell you what, I was, um, like I said, I had no part in this, listeners. When TJ threw that name out and, and, you know, Doug and Scott, I let them talk and they settled on Mike. And I, I'm sitting over here dumbfounded because I, it's an utter disaster, his bench. I mean... <laughs> TJ mentioned before it looks like a nuclear bomb went off. <laughs> it couldn't be closer to the truth. I mean, oh my gosh! So I, I'm certainly happy for Mike. And I, I again, listeners, this was totally unprompted. I I had no part in picking the person. <laughs> it, it, he, if there's a person that needs it, it's Mike. He he's on the struggle bus routinely uh, when it comes to not only cleaning up his workstation but finishing models as well. So if this little gift to him inspires some cleanup. Not only will he uh, do better in the hobby, but I think in life as well, because his wife won't kill him for having a disaster <laughs> of a bench, which I know is right off the family room in his house, he tells me. So, um, Jess, uh, you know, good, good for you. I'm, I'm so happy this is going to Mike. I hope it not only inspires him to be cleaner at his workbench, but certainly in the house as well. Definitely. Mike, all I can say is definitely. <laughs> well done. Well, send us your contact information, Mike, and uh, we will get you hooked up with your mat. Yes. <laughs> and uh, of course, <laughs> thanks to everyone who entered. And remember that you can purchase any of Tankcraft's great quality items over at tankcraft.com. And don't forget to use the code POSSE15 at checkout for our exclusive 15% offer for POSSE members. So with that hilariousness out of the way, uh, Scott, what do we have on tap for this episode? Well, we have a lot of great content for the Posse today. With the Nats coming up fast, we also wanted to remind all of the Posse members out there who also happen to be IPMS USA members that elections end August 31st. So to that end, today we have three of the candidates that are running for IPMS USA positions. We have Len Pilhofer, who's a candidate running for president, Rob Booth, who's a candidate that's running for IPMS secretary, and our very own John Bonani, who is running for IPMS second vice president. We also feature a discussion later in the show about magnum opus builds, or in other words, your ultimate dream builds. We also have our regular segments, including a modeler's minute with Scott Pasishnik, a.k.a. Small Soldier. In other podcast-related news, the Plastic Posse is pleased to formally announce that we will be participating, or more specifically, that TJ will be participating in the Musaru Podcast Challenge 3. This is a friendly modeling competition between podcasts that's sponsored by Ian Frazier and the fine folks up in the IPMS Hamilton chapter. On the Bench has claimed both of the first two Musaru Cup titles, so TJ is going to really need to be on his game to dethrone the Aussies. And we'll also be competing against modelers from On the Bench, Scale Model Podcast, Plastic Model Mojo, Just Making Conversation, and the Model Geeks. So what do you guys think? Is TJ up to this? Absolutely. We got this. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a freaking shark, and I smell blood in the water, and I'm going <laughs> to go after it. 
that Musuru cup, that belongs to me now. <laughs> Damn, what that, did was, you- that was Thanos right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just playing. No, it's, it's a friendly competition, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I'm building some sort of Gundam. Uh, Scott, uh, you know more about which one it is than I do. Which one is it? I sent it's you a picture a, of it's it. It's a Shinanju, and uh, I think it's an alternate version, but... Yes. Uh, the Shinanju is one of my favorite of all the Gundams. It's a it's a bad guy, but it's really elaborate. Has a lot of samurai warrior kind of inspired armor around it. It's 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 a cool piece. It's going to look awesome in olive drab. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> actually, yeah. So when I uh, it was waiting for me when I got home today from work, and uh, I opened it up and I looked at it. It's been a while since I I built the Gundam, and I ha- I have built like three or four of them. I've never painted one. Um, this one will be painted. Yeah, I was I was looking through the instructions. It looks pretty cool. Um, I like I like the way it looks. But yeah, it looks pretty cool. It's got the it has the one thing I like about the Gundams, like the this I think they're like the space Gundams. They have like those big long tubes, like on their back. Uh, they're like, I don't, fuel cells. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I I like it when when the Gundams have those. I, I don't know what it is about those, but I like that look. Um, it, there's like Machine and Krieger. Some of the space ones they have similar things, and I just think it looks cool. I don't know, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I think uh, Godfather Dave is uh, is building for on the bench. Yeah, I think yeah. you've got him a little nervous. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna crush him. I'm gonna crush him. I'm gonna crush him. I'm gonna spread him over my toast with with the Vegemite that he sent me, and I'm just gonna eat him for breakfast. Yeah, I think the Godfather sent some Vegemite to TJ to try and. Uh, sabotaging but i think tj yeah. you actually kind of liked it a little bit okay right? yeah just like just like i told on facebook it didn't work because i like it it was pretty good uh well okay good is not necessarily the the, the term i would use for it it's interesting which made me like it because i would not say it tastes good it tastes interesting and i like the way it tastes so honestly when i was in australia i couldn't get around the smell i would never put that stuff in my mouth it is very pungent <laughs> But I don't know. I like I put it on a cracker and I, I thought it was pretty good. I spread it on some toast, like everyone says you should, and I thought it was good. I was like, oh yeah, I could get into this. What's it taste like? Uh, it tastes like Vegemite. I, I, I honestly can't describe what it tastes like. It, it has one of those like one of those tastes like uh you know like red Swedish fish. What's a red Swedish fish taste like? A Swedish fish. Okay. It's just like I I, I don't know. It's made out of yeast, so I know Does that. T- tastes like depression. <laughs> oh man so everybody that's john in care of the plastic posse podcast <laughs> but th- but th- thank you for that dave that I, that made my day when i when i saw that i saw a package from australia i'm like what the hell is, i didn't buy anything from australia and then i, I opened it, i was like oh okay cool you must be trying to butter me up Anyway, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to seeing what TJ comes up with and the other podcast as well. Thanks again uh, to Lightspeed Global and IPMS Hamilton for sponsoring this year's Musuru Cup 3. All right, now it's time to remind everyone that we still have three ongoing group builds. So you can find them on Facebook by searching for Plastic Posse Group Build. The themes are TIE Fighters, Ryefield Models T-3485, and the Tamiya slash Edward 148 skill Spitfire Mark 1 slash Mark 2 build. If you don't have Facebook, that's okay. You're on Instagram or Twitter. You can join in as well by putting the hashtag PPP followed by the group build, whether it be TIE Fighter, 
Spitfire or T-34. I'll post these on our social media so you can know the exact nomenclature. Although these group builds don't really have a hard end date, we'd like to have a soft end date, and that is August 16th, 2021, which is coming up pretty quick. And that is the Monday before the Amps, before the IPMS Nationals in Las Vegas. If you're planning on attending Nats, please bring your completed group build so we can have the posse enter them and see, you know, everybody can look at everybody's group builds and have the opportunity to talk about it. So thanks so much, all. We certainly follow all of your builds and look forward to every post that you make. So take care. The Triple P is also sponsored by Sean's Custom Model Tools, makers of the Goodman Models Super Sanding Blocks. As we've been saying, these blocks are essential finishing tools for your modeling projects. These blocks allow you to have controlled precision sanding that yields fantastic results. They come in a range of grits from 80 to 600 grit and are perfect for many different modeling jobs. If you don't have a set yet, what are you waiting for? Head on over to www.goodmanmodels.com and order yourself a set. You'll be glad you did. Episode 25 of the Triple P is also sponsored by Michael Libero, Jonathan Anderson, along with our group of posse deputies including Terry, Paul, Matt, Ethan, Jamie, Steve, and Rick. These Posse members all donated to help us bring you this podcast every two weeks. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to help sponsor the Posse, it's pretty easy. Just head on over to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner of our website, there is a heart icon. Just click the icon, and then you can donate any amount you'd like. Or if you don't want to donate, that's okay. You can still show your support for The Plastic Posse by taking a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you're getting your podcast from. Five-star reviews really help us get The Plastic Posse out to more listeners who are interested in scale modeling podcasts. As most of you know, The Posse is just one of several scale modeling podcasts that whose number keeps on increasing. Stuart Clark of Scale Model Podcast has created a website where all of these different podcasts and blogs can submit their information where everyone can view them in one easy place. So head on over to modelpodcast.com and check it out. Doug, what did our listeners have to say this week? Well, there's a bunch. Um, we're going to start off with a, with a friend from Stockholm, Sweden, Mats Ericsson. He gave us a really long letter, so forgive me, Mats. I'm going to paraphrase some of this. He thanked us for the podcast, which he found thanks to the April issue of the Swedish Premium Hobby Magazine. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Sorry. But it translates to everything about hobbies. He was surprised by our show because he didn't think it would apply to him. His modeling has been seriously hampered by COVID. With a sore back, working from home, no model meetings, and no shows. He found us and we helped bring his hobby with him throughout his day, which helped him bring his mojo back. He loves to shut the world out with buildings, hit with his mental health, and he says he's a nicer person to be around. He loves our interviews and John's voice brings back memories of his Pittsburgh modeling days. He has some figures to take on his vacation to his cabin, so he's ready to rock. Thanks, Matt, uh, for reaching out to us from Sweden. And uh, yeah, John, it sounds like he uh, was familiar from... Uh... Yeah, you know, I, I really do miss Matt's because he was the one that would bring coffee and cookies to the meetings. And he was a favorite, not only for that, but he's a great guy and, and a good modeler builder as well. So it was sad to see him go, but I'm super happy he reached out to us. That's awesome. I'm I'm happy to hear he's doing well, and we certainly miss him from IPMS Three Rivers. So, again, thank you to reach for reaching out to us, Matt. By the way, we're getting tons of likes and positive comments about TJ. His 2021 year of knocking out one amazing model after another. Some posse members out there are starting to wonder if TJ is a mere mortal or not. I most certainly am. I have a gray hair, and 
my beard to prove it. If you cut him, does he bleed? Yeah, <laughs> that I definitely do quite easily. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jake Isley, he uh, thanked us for the podcast and he loved our interviews in the last in our last uh, session with Pete Kokla. Couldn't get any worse than I did. <laughs> He's a youngish modeler in his early 30s, and he loves to hear us talking about breaking the stigma about the hobby being for kids and grandpas. He was initially embarrassed to discuss or really get involved in the hobby outside of his workbench. But now he's got his own website. He's active on Facebook groups and forums and Instagram, and he's not shy about talking about it with random people. Thanks to the podcast, he finally pulled the trigger on his 135th Tamiya M1A1, and he's really excited about it. You can find his work at www.fox2models.com. So our friend Rick Baker is back, and uh, he was telling us that he would love to hear a discussion involving the driving forces behind each of the scale model podcasts. So I guess us and Mike and Stuart and the Podfather himself, which would be an interesting little roundtable. Probably set something like that up. And then the one interview he wanted to specifically comment on was Ivan, formerly of the scale model shed. He said he too dearly misses that show and especially the cash or stash segment, which apparently was a a big hit. And uh, the funny part of it to him is that uh, his Castmate Dan was on the short list, short list of sci-fi milers um, that he was going to suggest for an interview. And then he also liked our little MCU style stinger at the end of uh, the one episode where we were talking about Loki, which is a great show. All right. Next up, we have Steve Builds Panzers, and he wrote in to say, hey, guys, I'm finally catching up on the latest episodes. Just finished episode 22. I enjoy the section about photography. I'm actually a photographer by day. You can see his work at his Instagram, which is Steven, S-T-E-P-H-A-N dot Ortmans, O-R-T-M-A-N-N-S. And he's a scale modeler by night. I just want to comment. I pulled up his Instagram. He's like a legit pro photographer. Like these are gorgeous photographs. And he's he's mostly taking photographs of people and food. Food, that's got me there. And cars. As I scroll down, I see more. But it looks like he did a trip over to Mongolia and has some really, really beautiful photography. I mean, it's, and that's artful. So I thank you so much for Stephen for sharing your personal page. Fantastic work. Uh, he goes on to say, I fully agree that photos make or break the presentation of a model, but they can also be a tool for overselling it. That's why I've started to do two shots of a model for my Instagram account. The first one is a 10 minute Photoshop next to a window on my smartphone to show the model in a way that people would see it in real life. Uh, the second photo, I bring out my strobes and do a do a complete beauty shot on a clean white background with proper light. I have the photo shoot coming up this weekend and could take some behind the scenes shots of it. Oh, that'd be great. So thanks so much again for Steven for writing in and please, you know, share that with us. We'd, we'd love to see it. Jamie Stokes is back from Australia. He's really enjoyed the last few episodes and having Trevarian on was a great inclusion for the figure modelers out there. He loves our continued information about shows that are emerging from the pandemic and talking about the efforts that show organizers are going through to put these shows on. So a big thanks for all that we do on behalf of the South Australians Plastic Modelers Association. Thanks, Jamie. And just as a note, that group, their annual model expo will be had on October 8th, 9th, and 10th. If you're interested in attending the show, we will include a link to their show on our facebook page so good luck you guys uh we're sure you'll have an excellent show all right well thank you doug some good feedback this time appreciate everybody um commenting and sending in your feedback as always you can drop that on our plastic posse facebook page or send it to us at plastic posse podcast at gmail.com well it's time for the latest installment of our modelers minute segment this time, Doug and I had the chance to sit down and get to know Scott Posishnik, a.k.a. Small Soldier. Scott's a great modeler. He, he works in both uh, traditional scale modeling, aircraft, 
ships, tanks, but he also does a lot of figure painting, and he's really talented. He makes great videos, has his own YouTube channel, and he enjoys teaching his techniques as well. So enjoy the interview. Welcome into another Plastic Posse podcast interview. Today, Doug and I are delighted to be joined by Scott Pasishnik, a.k.a. The Small Soldier. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, welcome to our show. It's uh, It's been a little bit of a time coming, but we, we got it worked out finally. Before we get started, really love your work in those new uh, Jumanji movies. This is good, good stuff. Oh, hey, yeah. You know, everybody's got to have a doppelganger, I guess. Jack Black's mine. Yeah, exactly. Well, it seems like in the the last few years that he's like imitating you because I mean, yeah. you'll kind of you grew your beard and then he kind of started growing it more. So I know I don't know where he's seeing me, but he's seeing me somewhere and he keeps copying me. <laughs> I just want to see all the where's all the money. That's all I want to know. <laughs> you need those royalty checks, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just to give our uh, everybody a little bit of background. Scott has a YouTube channel that's called Small Soldier Adventures in Miniatures. And he also has a Facebook page as well as an Instagram and a Twitter account in the same name. That is correct. Well, Instagram, it's Small Soldier 1. But yeah, you'd find me on Small Soldier, I think, there. Scott's kind of known for his work equally in figure painting as well as uh, so-called traditional scale modeling. He's at home painting historical busts or even colorful like uh, figures like Popeye, for instance. Uh, he did a, mm-hmm. a Popeye bust recently. So he, he makes his way around a lot of different modeling groups. And he's, he's a, a beautiful painter, very, very talented guy. And uh, we're excited to talk to him. Making my head swell. All right, Scott. To get started, we always like to ask our interviewee. For, <laughs> what the, is the-, the victim. <laughs> The victim. We like to ask our victims uh, just to tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Well, um, I've been modeling for 40 plus years uh, since I was about 13 is when I really started getting into modeling. It all started with, a, do you remember the Snoopy biplane? Yeah. I forget who made it. Was it Monogram or somebody like that? It was- like, yeah, or Lindbergh or Aurora or somebody. Yeah. 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 My dad built that for me and I played with that thing. I just loved it. And then a few years later, I can remember building a matchbox kit. I think it was a dingo armored car or something, you know, when they came with the little bases in the kit. I remember building that and that kind of got me interested more, but I wasn't really into it till I hit about 13. And then uh, there was a local store here in Calgary called Little Generals. And a friend of mine went there one day and he came home and he said, hey, Scott, he called me on the phone and said, you got to come over and check this out. So I went over and I'm like, what what he said look at these look at these things they were they were the eshy green devil paratroopers you guys remember those 135th yeah. scale yeah so we opened the box up and we looked inside and there are all these plastic bits and i kind of knew what models were but i was like just enthralled with these figures and i was like wow this is great so we probably just twisted all the parts off the sprues and you know, didn't have the right tools and slapped some of that uh, tester's orange cement on there and thought they looked great threw some glossy paints on them and I was pretty much hooked at that point. So after that, uh, 
I think I made a few trips to Little Generals uh, and checked out the store. Walked around and saw some of these amazing vintage now, but Tamiya kits and bagged Airfix, Airfix kits. And there were the uh, Hysterex uh, figure kits, the Napoleons. And I remember those really kind of caught my eye. And he had a few uh, metal figures in there too. And I think the figures are what really brought me into the hobby the most. Seeing those, and I just had to have a few of those. So I bought a few of those kids, went home and started building those. And also one day saw um, the Shepherd Payne book, How to Build Dioramas. And really that was it. Once I saw that book, I was hooked and it was like my crack. I couldn't, I had to, I had to be a modeler. <laughs> so ever since that day, it was, it was all over for me. I was, I was hooked. Yeah, Shep had that effect on just a few of the modelers out there, including myself as well. Yeah, well, we're sort of the same vintage time, so yeah. you know, you remember them when that book came out, because all we had before that was, I don't know, was there a couple of publications, maybe? If you wanted to order anything, you had to actually write a letter to, to a company and six weeks for something to show up and... Yeah, modeling modeling magazines were few and far between, and and they would have usually the only color photo would be on the cover, and all the rest yeah. of the photos in the magazine were just black and white. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, compared to now, with all the resources we have on YouTube and magazines and Facebook and what have you, it's it's really it, we had nothing. <laughs> so true. So eventually, you get yourself into the point where you're doing. Uh, you've got your own YouTube channel. And in Instagram, I've watched some of your videos, especially the one I, I recently, I went back and started watching stuff about Photo Etch because oh, Photo yeah. Etch is not my friend, but um, you actually, they're very, very well put together. Tell us how you got into doing YouTube. Uh, well, that all started years ago, back in probably 94. I was walking, I got out of, just like everybody, you know. It's the same old story with everybody. You get out of the hobby for a while because time in between about grade 10 to your first year of college, sort of, right? Or after college, you don't really do a whole lot. Of, and I was that same guy, right? So finished uh, college, got married, and then uh, I was driving around one day and I saw another hobby store in the city here and stopped in and checked it out and saw some figures in there. And I was like, wow. Have these ever evolved since the last time I saw figures? So I ended up buying, a, I think it was a Verlinden figure, a resin figure. Painted that up and took that to a show in Toronto. I think it was a World Expo or no World something. Anyway, Shepard Payne was there and Bill Horan was there. And I didn't know any of these guys. Met them all. Dave Brown, do you know? Have you heard of Dave Brown? Oh, he yeah. The, yeah. Hornet Hobbies. Hornet Hobbies. Yeah. yeah. Met him. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you got to come to Chicago. That's the best figure show ever, right? So I was like, okay, Chicago, got to go there. Went to Chicago. And by that time, I'd already kind of come up with the name Small Soldier just because of a store in Edmonton, like I was telling you last night, called The Old Soldier. And Mark and I got to know each other. And he kind of helped me a bit. And one thing led to another. And then by 2005, I had a hobby store. And it was due to him. He, I, I really liked his concept and stuff. And Opened that hobby store and that continued as Small Soldier. And that closed down in 2010. And then uh, I ran a lot of classes through uh, the store. Like every Saturday Saturday morning we'd have classes and that kind of thing. So I was quite used to teaching and talking in front of everybody. So I thought, what the heck, why not try YouTube as well? Since I kind of missed that part of it. I didn't really miss the business end of the hobby store. That kind of sucked, to be honest. But I really liked the teaching part. So 
yeah, from there just evolved into uh, uh, YouTube. And that name is carried right from the beginning to now. So that's kind of the history. What was it like meeting Shep and Bill Haran? I mean, those guys are legends. Amazing. When I first met Shep in Toronto, I was in awe. But when I got to go to Chicago, he invited me to his house. Yeah, yeah. I was in his house twice, actually, in two, on two different years. And you know all those photographs you see in the book? They were all in there. Like he had all the scenes and all the little dioramas and stuff in his house. You could go look at these things. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm standing in front of this. Looking at my standing in my uh, my modeling idol's house, I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> Why did he like it? Wasn't just me. It was some other guys. It was kind of like a party yeah. of I just happened to get sucked into the to the party, and uh, it was amazing. Uh, the guy's house was full of rare military artifacts. He had like Napoleon's nephew's sword or something like that, and oh, wow. battle flags and World War One uniforms, like rows of them in this closet and I was like just blown away right and Bill Horan he was great too I think it was the second year I went back to uh Chicago Shep said to me would you like to judge and I was like judge what you want me to judge <laughs> I'm brand new to this I'm like I don't know if I feel comfortable judging all these amazing figures because have you ever been to the Chicago show no uh have you ever been to a show where it's figure heavy like lots of dioramas and figures? Is it mostly a mix? Usually it's just a mix, the a ones mix. I've been well, to, yeah. The Chicago show is very heavily uh, figure-oriented. So you've got guys coming from all over the world. Russian painters, like you've seen some of those Russian painters oh, on Facebook. Yeah. That was what they were doing back in 1994. And I was looking at going, there's no way these people are human. <laughs> there's no way because nobody can paint that small and that precise. But they were doing it. And, you know, I was just blown away that he wanted me to help judge all this stuff with Bill Horan. I, I, he said, okay, you go with Bill and judge. And I'm like, what? Bill, my second hero, I'm going to actually walk around with him. And I, I think it was just shaking most of the time, just not <laughs> believing that I was actually, I was like, is this real? Am I imagining this? You know? So that was quite a, that was amazing. I have to say that was one of the best experiences of my life, meeting Shep and, and Bill and Oh, I met all sorts of different fellas too, like Doug Cohen and anyone that was anybody in the figure business was there. I think the guy from Andrea Miniatures was there as well. That's uh, Talk about having gas dumped on your hobby fire. Yeah, totally. And then seeing all the people that were doing sculpting at the time uh, was kind of kind of the beginning of, of really good sculpting back in the 90s. And I, I couldn't believe some of the stuff. Uh, Fletcher Clement, you ever heard of him? He just passed away, actually, a couple months ago or something. Uh, a great, great sculptor and creative guy. He came up with so many unique and innovative dioramas of figures. Like One I, one I remember specifically was the Four Riders of the Apocalypse or something like that. That was bloody amazing. I, I was like jaw-dropped to the ground when I saw that. That's the kind of stuff that got me so excited about figure painting and sculpting. And so when I came home, I was just like, I got to start doing some sculpting and, you know, really get into this hard. So that's sort of where the whole thing stemmed from was going to a couple of those shows in Chicago. So what year was the Chicago show? And, you know, how long did it take for you to kind of shift mainly into figures? Was it like right then it happened? And Right then. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, I got to start doing this because uh, there's so many options for eras and you know it, it kind of 
it spans further than World War One and World War Two, like most armor stuff does. Well, modern stuff too, but you can go all over the place, like with fantasy and pretty much anything, right? So I think it's so broad. That's what kind of made me want to do it more than than uh, armor or aircraft. Although I do enjoy armor and aircraft, I like to switch it up from time to time because you know, as you guys know, you get bored or tired of a uh, one specific genre to work on. Well, while Doug's taking a look at that, you mentioned that you do traditional so-called scale modeling. So what kind of aircraft and armor do you like to build? Pretty much anything, but I think my favorite is probably World War One to World War Two, and anything in between there. I haven't really got into a lot of modern stuff, although there is some really neat modern stuff out there. I would say that's probably my main area of interest. I saw that little uh, zero you did on the Rising Sun base. That, that was really a, oh. great, a great little build. Thank you. Yeah. And that's another thing I like doing is kind of customizing my bases. I don't know if you've seen the Popeye base and the yeah. the ROM base and the, the spit. The, I did a Spitfire and a 109 as well. They were both actually fighting against each other in the Battle of Britain and both lost their lives the same day. So I thought that was kind of cool to do two separate aircraft that were fighting against each other with custom bases of actual pilots on the base. So, you know, I like kind of coming up with unique things like that. So it's not so traditional, I suppose. Yeah, I like that wildcat you did with the uh, carrier base as well. Yeah. That was, that was yeah. pretty sharp. Yeah, exactly. Things like that. Just spruce it up a bit. Add it doesn't have to be something totally amazing like a Martin Kovac uh, building something out of styrofoam <laughs> in the building. Oh, I've never done this before. Uh, yeah, just, <laughs> seriously. I'm terrible at this. And everyone's going like, shut up you are not yeah seriously i've never painted a figure before bam i've never built a building before bam yeah exactly yeah exactly he says he's not going to do aircraft next week he's going to come up with yeah i I hated this aircraft build i did and it's going to be like better than anything we've ever seen yeah no he he's so influential i mean we joke around on the podcast that he pays us to mention him at least once per episode but i mean he just he comes up in every conversation well how couldn't he right I mean, the guy's the guy comes from nowhere, and then all of a sudden has like uh, what 156,000 subscribers now, and 10 million uh, Patreon supporters, and he's doing it full time. I mean, every YouTuber's dream, right? Yeah. To be uh, building models full time, but but he's done it right for sure. So, yeah, if we could all be like Martin, <laughs> in a perfect world. We do all want to be like Martin. I'm not afraid to admit it. No, no, definitely without not. the broken leg. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just said to him uh, the other day, I, I, he was asking about questions, uh, I guess, when he did his recent upload about the, what would you like me to do or whatever, that kind of thing. And I just posted one saying, well, it's a good thing you didn't break your hands or your fingers because then you'd really be screwed. I mean, at least with a leg, you can kind of do something still. As a model, we, you know, we're like uh, that episode with on Seinfeld where he's, he's the hand model. You know, he's got to wear gloves all there. <laughs> Oven mitts all day long, right? We're kind of like that as modelers. We walk walk around with oven mitts on all day and not have our hands all smashed to pieces. By the way, Martin, get better, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how do you choose the subjects when you when you're working on a new new video? What's what's your uh, qualifications for a for a new subject? That's always a problem, right? Because you're you try not to be like the next guy or that you know you you don't want to copy, although. Copying is the best form of flattery, yeah. right? Within reason. You don't want to totally copy somebody. But that's what I do. I look around on YouTube and see what people are doing and go, hey, that's kind of cool. I should take that, but then twist it just a little bit or turn it just a little bit or 
change the subject slightly, you know, things like that. Or uh, you can just do a random search on the, in the search engine go, I don't know, I want to build something with four turrets on it or whatever. You type that in and, wow, actually somebody's made a video about that? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then you go, okay, maybe I won't do that or maybe I will do that. So that, that's another way I find ideas as well. Uh, just a YouTube search. I've seen something really neat on Facebook or, or Instagram, and it kind of sparks me to want to come up with um, something along those lines. Or it's just an awesome figure I've seen. Like, I've I've got a few figures that are, are in the cabinets there waiting to get painted, uh, you know, Vikings. And I got a, a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Well, it's not Snow White, but it's the Seven Dwarfs, uh, like their heads, sort of in a vignette, kind of a close-up bust of them, sculpted by, I can't remember his name, but it's... Spirium Marabellis or something like that. Yeah, the, like a dwarf on a on a boar, right? Well, that that one's a different one. Yeah, that's probably one of the next ones I'll do. It's it's a dwarf on a boar. If that's a, a dolmen miniatures piece, which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome! Oh, very cool. Isn't that neat. So they're kind of very caricaturized, but yeah. uh, you know. So I'm looking forward to painting that. Uh, I just don't know. You know, I'm scared to tackle that one because it's such a it's so so in depth like there's seven figures there and you know you can't just kind of yeah. paint them all the same you have to vary the facial tones and i want to have ambient lighting coming onto it and maybe paint some non-metallic metals in there and yeah that, those kind of figures are, are a real challenge right because you're always trying to push yourself and up your game every time you do a figure and try out new techniques i wanted to start working with more non-metallic metal effects and like i said ambient lighting light sources coming from different sides of the figures so maybe one side of the figure is green and the other side is red how do you paint that yeah i'm glad you brought that up because while i mean while we're talking about a specific piece kind of describe to us like what's your process like what mediums do you like to use do you airbrush and hand brush your pieces or does it just all depend on each individual piece uh yeah for the most part i start with airbrush and i'll do a pre-shade and a post-shade. So a darker shade sprayed from below, a lighter shade sprayed from the top. And that way it kind of gives you a starting point. Like unless you're going to light the, the, you can light the figure as well and take a photograph of it, you know, so you get the exact kind of lighting scenario that you're looking for. But for the most part, I'll just do a, a spray from the top and the bottom, maybe from a 45 degree angle or a 90 degree angle, depending on how I want to light it. And then go in with uh, acrylics, kind of do a, an underpainting with acrylic and then start going in with the oils on top of that. It's kind of the process you have to do when you're painting with the oils because they're so transparent. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not like an opaque medium like acrylic. Well, yeah, and then just go in with um, glazes of oils mixed with a little bit of thinner, sometimes liquid. Yeah, it's kind of my process. But I'm experimenting all the time and trying different things. So. And I'll mix oils and acrylics together, not physically mix them together, but I'll put a layer of acrylics in this one area and then go in with some oils and bump it up or go back in with some acrylics and bump up those oils. A lot of people think you can't do that, but I've never really had an issue with going over top of oils and acrylics. That's an interesting technique. It you know, kind of reminds me of you know when you're doing armor and you have multiple layers that you want to chip, right? So yeah. you put down your base color, your metal color, then your green paint over the top and you chip it back. And then a lot of times you'll put a barrier coat to protect the chipping below. And, and you're almost, you know, by using the dissimilar mediums, you've got some interesting effects that you can lock and unlock by doing it that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's uh, similar to figure painting. Just uh, 
I'd say armor's probably more accessible for people because it's not a human face or a human hands, right? I will make things made out of metal all day long, but painting a human face is the most intimidating part of modeling. No, I mean, for me, it's just absolutely no contest. Yes, exactly. And, and that's the, I think that is probably the biggest roadblock for most modelers. They just don't want to throw a figure in there because they think it's, if I do a, if I do a piece of armor, people will just look at it as that, you know, I can't really, I, I can screw up and maybe hide stuff easier, but on a figure, you can't really paint a face and have it kind of greenish if it's supposed to be a Caucasian and, and go, yeah, okay, that's all right. You know, unless yeah. you're painting it under a certain lighting situation, um, people would just look at it not knowing anything about modeling and go, that looks wrong. You know, it's, I, I, I do have figures. I have one rule when I buy figures. They have to have full face helmets. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of guys will pick them up, right? Have binoculars or some sort of face shield or a cloak or yeah, exactly. That's I think that's uh, what scares people the most is the face and the hands more than anything. Like clothing are are maybe a little more easier for somebody to wrap their head around because it's cloth and if you can paint uh, tarps and stuff like that, it's kind of similar. But yeah, I mean faces and hands are hold, and then you, we're not even talking getting into different nationalities, right? Now you're mixing your colors totally different, and that gets even more confusing. So. For me, too, painting an Asian or a Indian face is a lot different than painting a Caucasian face. Your colors or palette is totally different. So, Doug mentioned a few minutes ago the videos um, that you're doing on Photo Etch, and I just wondered how that one 200-scale HMS hood that you added all the Photo Etch you could eat to, how's that coming along? Well, it's been here for two years now, over two years now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, I've, I've told the guy I'm going to at least finish the build by the end of the month and then re- relinquish it back to its rightful owner because I told him, I said, I just, I don't think it's ever going to get done. I try, like, you know, it, the, if you've done photo etch before and tiny photo etch, I'm talking like microscopic stuff, putting that together, it can be just mind numbing. I mean, I, I enjoy it, but when you're putting together 18 sheets of photo etch, on a kit, yeah, including resin parts, metal turn parts. It's so overwhelming. You have to be so invested on that project and wanting to finish it. And even then, I don't know how many people actually will take it that far and actually finish one of those. There are a few, and I've seen them on YouTube, but uh, you almost have to drop everything and just go for it to, to finish something like that. It, see, it seems like it. I know a couple of guys that model those 1-200 skill. And, you know, they buy the kit, but they usually spend at least double the cost of the kit in aftermarket parts. You know, you're talking, like you said, wooden decks and turn metal barrels, but sheet after sheet after sheet of photo etch, because all those ships have the rigging, they have, you know, like your exhaust uh, baffles on your hood, exhaust stacks, your anti-aircraft guns. I mean, just on and on and on. Yeah, exactly. It's it becomes a little overwhelming after after a while. Like I haven't even got to any painting on that thing yet. It's just subassemblies after subassemblies, right? So I'll just be glad to get it out the door for a few years, and I think he'll be glad to have it back. He's like, "Don't worry about it. I can paint it." He's just finished building it. I'm like, "Sounds like a deal." There's that. Uh, don't take commissions, guys. Yes. Unless you really, really want to do it. But when once you start making something where somebody's paying you to do it. And you're trying to do the best you can do 
creating this for the person, you're feeling so obligated to get it done that it doesn't become fun anymore. You know, like it, 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 can, it can really suck your mojo. Unfortunately, it's kind of done that to me because I'm yeah. always thinking about it in the back of my head. I got to get it done. I got to get it done. And it, it hurts my other work because the work that I'm trying to do, that thing in the background, right, you know, is, is constantly niggling at me to finish it. So yeah, well, for, for this same customer, I built him two of those 72nd scale Ravel uh, U-boats. Oh, wow. The Type 9s or Type 7s? Yeah, Type 7s, yeah, uh, over the last, well, in the last 10 years. But those are much more doable because they don't have, you can get levels of photo etch and different stuff with each kit. And this was kind of a a low-end kind of photo etch and, you know, no wooden deck and you didn't have to do a lot of cutting and removing. That's more doable. You know, you can finish that project within a few months, but yeah, some projects that you take on, even for fun, even if they're not, you know, commission pieces. You think you guys know you've got shelf queens, right? Like you get into something. I've got a few up there, and yeah, they're like three quarters. Can I plead? Can I plead the fifth? Yeah. Exactly. My question is, how many do you consider a few? Because I have a few too. Let's see. <laughs> I, don't I really don't have that many. One, two. I would say ten, maybe. Okay, I don't have that many, but I have so a lot. Not a, not a whole. Lot. You're always looking at those and going, when am I going to get those done too, right? Sometimes yeah. my shell queens become the thing that I build to get myself back in a groove, just to finish it up. I'm going to finish this yeah. thing off. I don't care if it's not perfect, but and sometimes mm-hmm. they hit the shelf because I made a mistake or something. So I'll bring it down and I'll just kind of ignore the, the flaws and just have a good time finishing it. That gets me rolling again. I'm not going to use the M word, huh. but uh, okay, I'll use mojo. You know, it gets you, it gets it back. And you get, and and, totally. and then get rolling again. So I've used those to great effect in the past. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a great point. I, I do the same thing too. I'll pull something down and, and just go, okay, it's, it's like 80% finished. Why can't I finish this thing? And I pull it down and I force myself to finish it. And, and then it becomes enjoyable because you're like, why didn't I finish this before? I was so close and I don't know why, because it's turned out great. And then sometimes things don't turn out great and end up in the old bin so tj on our podcast he he's had a goal to kind of do a lot more model building this year and so he's kind of gone after his shelf of doom and he's about eradicated it i mean i think he has a couple left but he's just kind of been cranking them out and he's saying the same things you know a lot of times he'll he'll go back and pull one down and he'd be like why didn't i just finish this exactly when it's so close to being finished why don't we finish them right that could be a whole uh subject for a podcast right there there you go why don't we why don't we finish our what what sucks our mojo the most probably mostly life and and uh, work i would say probably get in the way yeah how much how much time do you have <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly that's right well do you do uh um we've talked about naval and we've talked about fantasy you know um mentioned uh, briefly the Popeye bust. I would probably want to get get back to that, the Seven Dwarves and things like that. But what about science fiction? Doug's a huge Star Wars fan. And mm-hmm. uh, you have any of those in your queue or that you'd like to build? I really do. I mean, I'm a Star Wars fan. Not so much Star Trek, but Star Wars for sure. Like you, Scott, I used to watch Battlestar Galactica growing up and nice. loved all the shows, right? The old Star Trek from the 60s. I find those more interesting than the new ones. I don't know why. I guess it's so vintage. But yeah, that's that's the kind of science fiction I like too. And some modern science fiction. Not so much into the robot Gundam stuff, but Machine Krieger. I like that. That's 
that's a little because it's got hum, a human element to it, I guess. That's why I like yeah. I do have the only two things I have in my stash are uh, two 144 scale Bandai kits Millennium Falcon and uh, where are they? TIE Fighters, I think. The two yeah. variants from the TIE Fighters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd like to, I think those would be a good Mojo booster build because they're so small and they're not a lot to construct, but. Man, the details on those things are insane. Is that the the one forty four scale Falcon, or is it the three fiftieth Falcon? Because the three fiftieth is a much smaller kit, but the one forty fourth is a substantial little build. It's a blast. Um, it's just it's a joy to build. Not to get the the conversation off track, but I'm going to shout out Chris Sieber, Luftrom seventy two. He just fig uh, finished one of those one three fiftieth Falcons. When we get done, take a look at his build. It, it, oh man, just a little sweetheart of a build. And as a figure, as a figure painter, I think you're going to really dig it because he took a, I think a pretty similar approach to his model as a figure painter would. Cool. I'll have to check him out. I, I I've seen him on Facebook. I think I'm actually uh, sorry on Instagram. I'm pretty sure I'm uh, following him. So yeah, I'll have to yeah, check he, him out. He's he's great for sure. Yeah. So D- yeah, Doug is building a Falcon as well, but he's doing uh, the uh, perfect grade, the one seventy second scale Bandai. It's it's a beast, and it's yes, it's a beautiful kit. Uh, I, every single piece, over six hundred pieces, and so far everything I put in it, I say wow, almost every piece. I just can't believe the fit <laughs> and the detail and what they yeah. do in that, and you can recognize. You know, bits and pieces of other kits, of the kits they used to build the original Millennium Falcon model in 1977. You can recognize all of these little things on there. It's amazing. Nice. Yeah, he has two of them. Okay. (laughs) One of them I I was given for Christmas by my kids when it was newly released. They, I, I, I told them about it and said, there's absolutely no way I'll ever be able to afford one. And then we moved into a new home and I've got a second one that I purchased to trade to a contractor friend who's a sci-fi geek uh, to help me out in the basement. So he'll help me with some of the work and I'll buy all the stuff, but he'll point me in the right direction and help with some of the work. And we'll get, we'll, we'll do this and trade. Well, let's talk about your Popeye bust. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, you did kind of the prototype build and did like the box art build on, on that bust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They used it as their box art for that one. And actually, I've got a magazine article in some European ma- magazine. They sent it to me once already, but they put the wrong address on it, so it went back, and now it's being resent again with the article that I wrote an article for that bust. So it'll be uh, my second article I've done. Well, tell us a little bit about about that build. I, I followed it along as you were painting it, and really enjoyed kind of your step by step photos. But yeah, talk about that a little bit. Well, I commented on the on the piece because uh, the guys at Dolman Miniatures put the piece up, and I was like, "Oh, wow, that is really cool." I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a, a Popeye bus before. Like I've seen some, but not this one's kind of more a Robin Williams kind of version of, of Popeye. Yeah, I could see that right away when I looked at it. I could see Robin Williams, although he's not so much based on Robin Williams. I think it's based more on the actual guy. There was a Popeye character. He was an actual sailor. I can't remember all the details right now, but he was on—he was a British sailor on one of the ships. He looked exactly like that. You know, he had no teeth, so he had that sunken-in look. When you look at the picture of him, it looks just like this Popeye figure. I think he kind of mixed the two, Popeye, uh, the, the real Popeye and Robin Williams. I saw that post, and I was like, that is so cool. I love that figure. And he said, oh, well, do you want me to send you one? And I was like, okay, sure. 
So he sent me the figure and painted it up. He said, yeah, it looks great. I love it. Kind of gave me some reference photos on how he wanted certain things painted on it. Posted the photos and he said, yeah, let's do it as the box art for the figure. And that was that. So... Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you is like, as opposed to a historical bust where you're going to have a photograph or maybe in some cases, some paintings, if they're old enough historical figures, but on something like that, that's a hybrid of real world and a cartoon character almost, how would you go around, you know, how would you go about your inspiration for the lighting and the way that you paint the face and the way that you bring life to that figure? Yeah, that that figure actually was the first figure I kind of broke away from my painting style a bit. I wanted to give it more of a painterly feel, almost an artistic approach as opposed to painting it traditionally. So the brush strokes were a little different and I changed up my style a little bit. The lighting was from a slightly different angle so I could get the right effect, I suppose, on the on the face. I, I was trying to paint it somewhere in between the cartoon and real life. That makes sense. I didn't want it to be like the Rommel bust they did or like the Eddie Rickenbacker bust they did. Those were painted more traditionally to look realistic. This one I wanted to, like I said, make it look not comic booky, but just different so that when somebody saw it, they could tell it was the style was slightly different, I guess. You know, so the, the materials were still the same that I used, but the style was slightly different. Yeah, it was a conscious decision to do that, but it's one of those things, like my t-shirt, there was a lot of happy accidents that happened on that one. <laughs> and some really bad accidents too, because there was there was actually an issue with the resin on the back of the head and around the front of the face where the it was, I don't think it was fully cured in a couple spots. So it was leaching through the paint and I was having, yeah, I was having a real, and this was after things were already finished painting. So I was like, oh no, now I have to go back and sand out areas and blend it back in with an airbrush and then go back in with oils. So that was really the biggest challenge painting that figure was trying to fix the pro, fix the, the mistakes that were caused by that issue, right? So in the end, it worked out good. Scott, I wanted to ask you about your approach that you take in your YouTube videos when you're teaching your techniques and demonstrating the way that you paint your pieces. I know you said earlier that you were really influenced by Bill Haran and by Shep Payne and some of those guys. So how do you, I mean, are you inspired by the way that they taught or how do you approach that? Yeah, well, Shep Payne definitely was the one that got me into modeling as heavily as I am. Well, and I'm sure lots of other people too. After, you know, looking at his book and reading it dozens of times and just learning all those techniques in there, um, he definitely was an inspiration as far as style goes from the beginning. And then there was another book uh, he came out with called Painting Figures. I don't know if a lot of people know about that book. It's a a different book than How to Build Dioramas in that one was my Bible. That's the thing that really, I sunk my teeth into that. And I just read every word, looked at every picture. Of course, we didn't have YouTube back then or visual. We just had to kind of look at the pictures and couldn't really tell how they were making that stroke with the brush or how they were blending. They kind of explain it and you just kind of learn and teach yourself from there. I'd already kind of been painting on canvas and stuff as a kid, did a lot of artwork. So I had a little bit of knowledge about how to work with paint, but not a whole lot. Color theory and how to mix colors and how to apply colors. That book really was, like I said, my Bible as far as learning those techniques. And then uh, Bill Horan's book, The Masterclass on Sculpting and Painting, 
That's another book that I read from cover to cover probably 10 times as well. That's a fantastic book. And I, I just, he goes through different ways of applying oils and glazes and building up your darks and your lights and getting those uh, kind of like in a, in an oil painting way. But he talks more about working with enamels because he's an enamel painter. So I worked with enamels for a while, like the Humbrol enamels, and then started experimenting with oils more because I wanted a little more option for, for color and the transparency, and that's what oils allow you to have. From there, I just branched out to using oil paints and continued on and haven't, haven't really stopped. And then in my videos, that's basically, I just kind of teach what I learned. If people think that's cool and, and they want to you know learn from my mistakes, I guess, because I made a lot of mistakes. So I'm trying, I guess the whole idea of YouTube is to teach people the pre-mistake stuff. Don't do this, do this. Don't use that brush, use this brush. Don't thin your paint with this stuff, thin it with this. So that if they are exploring with oil paints, they can have at least a, a running start instead of, you know, just fumbling with whatever and trying this and failing miserably. And there's a couple guys on Instagram, actually, I, I helped a lot with uh, a couple pieces of work they were doing. And they'd ask me all sorts of questions and they said they were watching my Popeye video or my uh, Rommel video over and over again and trying to figure out. And they'd ask me questions. Of, I saw you doing this in this part of the video. How are you moving the brush? It, I kind of can tell, but, you know, they'd want a little more in-depth explanation. So, you know, I'd communicate back and forth with them. And so that's great. I mean, if I can help people that are looking to branch out into oils, which is, you know, figure painting is one thing, but then when you're getting into oil paints, that's kind of another dimension on top yeah. of just working with yeah. acrylics. So yeah, the oil thing, um, I think that's kind of my bread and butter on, on my YouTube channel. That's what I, I'm a figure guy mostly, and I do like working in oils. Although I plan on doing some videos with acrylics coming up too, but uh, I think that's why people come to my channel a lot is to is to check out the how to paint oils because it's kind of a mystery for a lot of people. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, they bring a lot of power, but they take obviously a little more skill and I think mm -hmm. experience as well. I also, mm -hmm. early, especially early on in your channel, I thought you used humor really well in, in, in your videos. I mean, is that something that comes natural? Yeah. There's nothing worse for me than to watch a video on YouTube or, or anywhere. And it's, uh, it's just kind of dull and dry. Like, a, I'm not saying it has to be a, you know, comedy uh, Monty Python routine, but you know, if a guy, I, I, I like, what was his channel? Um, he was doing really well and then he quit. Sergio G, Sergio, I can't remember the, the last part of his channel, but it was Sergio something. And he had kind of some comical stuff in there. Horn honks and like if a piece went flying or whatever out of his yeah. teaser. I like that kind of stuff. It's comic relief or throwing in maybe a gif of Seinfeld or something. Just something really quick, and, but that pertains to the situation. I enjoy that. Yeah. Some people don't. And I've had people comment on my videos and say, hey, enough with the with the Hollywood uh, routine. <laughs> I'm like, dude, there's lots of channels out there that don't, that just, if you just want to see just straight modeling and you're not, you don't want to be entertained at all, there's lots. Yeah, you got to be your, you got to be yourself. Exactly. And I thought about changing that too from some, and I don't get a lot of bad. I mean, my, my uh, percentage on comments really never goes under 97% as far as likes go. Yeah. So I've, I've never really had an issue with haters on my channel. I, I get a few here and there, but like you said, you just got to be you and, and I got to stick, stick, 
tr- stay true to myself and, and having some comedy here and there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I enjoy it. And you look at Plasmo and Night Shift, they both use self-deprecation and, and some Absolutely. some humor in almost every one of their videos. And I think it's one of oh, the yeah. reasons they're so popular. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun to laugh at yourself, tell yourself that you're a big screw up or whatever in the middle of the video. I think people think that's kind of funny. I enjoy it. So. All right, Scott, this is a question that we've asked quite a few of our guests and we'd like to ask you, is modeling art? Uh, well, I would say depends on the person and depends on the piece you're looking at, but I like to think it's art to a certain extent. You're definitely using artistic talents or artistic, you're using artistic examples and artistic techniques to get to the final product when you're building a, a tank or an airplane or a figure. Uh, you're using the same materials in art, as an artist would. So, you know, why couldn't it be art? I don't see why it couldn't be. On the other hand, what is art? You know, like is is the painting hanging in the Louvre any different than, you know, somebody building a, a great masterpiece diorama or sculpting an amazing figure? 90% of the population would say, yeah, the Louvre, if you're in the Louvre, you're an artist, right? Or if you're in a, uh, another good point I heard uh, today is that if you're not making money do, building models, then you're not an artist. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe, because as an artist, are you, not all artists make money. You've heard of the starving artist, right? I mean, they call themselves an artist, they're working away at it, but they don't make a whole lot of money. So I don't know if I totally believe that, you know, if you're not making money, then I wouldn't call it art. Because there's some guys in the modeling industry that, that make a living at it and get paid. And then other guys that just do it as a hobby and, and that's fine. And, and uh, I don't know if I'd call just a, you know, taking a bunch of plastic out of the box and clipping it together and then painting that. I don't know if that's just art in itself. I think it has to be taken a little further, like, you know, really weathered really nicely or really built perfectly because it's a craft sort of, right? It's, it's a learned craft and you have to learn certain techniques to get good at it. And again, art is like that too. You have to learn certain techniques and you have to practice before you can get good enough to let's say hang your art in a museum or something like that or sell it to somebody. Oh, I've seen some art pieces that sell and I'm like, what? Let me ask you this. If you had one of Shep Payne's dioramas with figures in your hands, yeah, would that be a piece of art? Let's let's frame the argument in that way. Yeah, well, I'm kind of biased here because yes, I, he was he was my hero growing up. So if I could get my hands on the worst piece of whatever Shep has ever done, I would call that art because, you know, he's, he got this whole thing going. I'm just, it's just kind of sad that he's not, he's still not here with us because I think he'd be amazed at how the modeling community and podcasts and YouTube has grown since his passing. Like, to be honest, between him and let's say Francois Verlinden and some of those early guys, those two off the top of my head, they're kind of the ones that were, you know, really prevalent when I was growing up. If it wasn't for those guys, I don't know if we'd all still be doing this. Some of us would, but I don't think it'd be as big as, as it is now. So yes, definitely. If I had a piece of Shepard Payne diorama sitting in front of me, I would consider that art. Or definitely Bill Horan too. I mean, you guys have seen his work. The guy sculpts 25 figures in a, in a historical scene and they're all beautifully sculpted. And he's cranking them out. Well, maybe not as much as he used to, but you know, he put those pieces out in a year and it would take me months to sculpt one figure. 
and look at that and go, where are you finding the time? You've got kids, you've got, I think he was an industrial designer. While you were talking with James, I was listening yeah. to LPJ. Yeah, I've gotten to know him really well over the last couple of years. And that's another guy. He was saying, oh, I've got a full-time job and I, I could be more productive. I'm like, what? You're coming out with a video every other week, dude. How are you doing that? It takes me like sometimes three months to come out with a video. And guys like that, I, I, I really admire because I, I don't know how they have the time and the energy. <laughs> yeah, and he's that was a great interview. He's out making yeah. his own paints from moss in the bottom of a stream and mud. Cobalt and I'm like <laughs> some sort of mad scientist from the like the eighteen hundreds? What are you doing? <laughs> he's like you know, that's literally the first time in an interview. He's like, yeah, I've got a, this Italian book from the 15th century. And yeah, yeah. so I went out in the, in the creek bed and made my own paint pigment, you know? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was awesome. He's awesome. He's, I can he's, see him doing that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so on our last episode, we had a great conversation, just, just the guys from the podcast. And John Bonani asked the question, what mm-hmm. is it about the hobby that you love? What do you love about about the scale about scale modeling everything there's there's really no no part of scale modeling that i that i don't enjoy i mean the creativity of it the uh, camaraderie between you know social media and talking to fellows like you or or you know going to shows and seeing other people's work just yeah i'm a creative guy and I, i i love it as a creative outlet that i i don't have to have the pressure of maybe doing it full time as an artist like i said i was trained as an artist but it's not my daytime daytime job anymore but for sure it's it's just great to sit back and and just kind of let your day go and create stuff that's interesting to me and hopefully interesting to other people and youtube videos i guess they're they're part and parcel of the whole thing too and the only thing i don't like as much about that is is the editing i enjoy the editing but it's so bloody long I'll spend 25 hours editing a video or 30 hours sometimes, just as much time as it takes to film it. That's that's probably my least favorite part. But other than that, I really can't think of anything in modeling that, that I dislike. Sometimes, you know, you get some of the haters and stuff or the ultra rivet counters that want to pull people down or, or discourage them. And I don't like that. That definitely kind of bugs me. Sure, criticize somebody, but do it if if they're only asking. And make it constructive, not destructive. There's too many people that want to give people just bad advice or or just want to pull them down a notch. I don't know why. I guess to make themselves feel better maybe. But in my opinion, if somebody's asking for advice, I'll give them advice. But I'll do it in a constructive way. I won't say, wow, first of all, you're a terrible model builder. Look at all those seams all over there. Why are you even doing it? I'd never say that to anybody. Or, or I would never just jump out and tell anybody anything without them asking. Right. So that really bugs me. I don't like that. Yeah, no, I, I see that. And I, I think that's a great point. We have a tremendous environment that we're in as modelers. It's the golden age. Everybody talks about that. We have any kit we want, any figure we want, any finishing product. And then we have this amazing tool, social media, that can either be very positive or it can be very negative. If there's a million modelers, there's room for all one million to do it in their own way. I like to spray lacquer paints in my airbrush, but somebody else lives in an apartment with a family where they can't spray lacquer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's room for everybody. And 
I think that's a great point. Awesome. Awesome point. Yeah. I mean, if, if so, somebody doesn't have to be a pro modeler to show their stuff, if they're proud of it and they're happy with it, show it off. But somebody shouldn't tear them down a notch. All they're going to do is want to quit building models and say, what a bunch of dicks. I don't want to hang out with these guys. You know, yeah. you want to keep people in the hobby, I think. And that's... Somebody on one of our shows, I think, said, you know, we're all at different points in the journey. Some sure. of us are starting out. Some of us are just getting back in. Some of us, like myself, have been in the hobby. We're older than the hills. So we're all at different places and we're all just trying to get better, I think. Well, it's, it's a constant learning curve. Like, I would never say that I'm a master of oil painting or I'm a master of aircraft building or anything ever. You're always learning and I'm always seeing other people's work and going, wow, that is amazing. How did you do that? Can you tell me how you made that oil stain or whatever? I would never put myself at the point where I think I've gotten as far as I can and as good as I can and I never want to grow any further. I'm always wanting to learn. I think that's another great part about modeling. There's, you never learn, you never stop learning. There's always something new, it seems. You know, I think we're, like you said, we're in the golden age right now where there's so many people trying different things and different ways of doing things that we're seeing all this amazing work, people doing lighting and, you know, what's the next thing? Are we going to actually see models that are hovering somehow in some magical way over a base? And you don't know, are mixing holograms into modeling in Star Wars? Maybe it's going to be something like that. You never know. Yeah. I mean, look at the use of micro magnets. Yeah. I can't believe the stuff that they're coming out with 3D printing. It kind of makes you... uh think is is that's what is that what's going to take over as far as the, the the molding process i suppose yeah i mean it's 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 far away i think just because there's you'd have to have 10 million banks of printers printing stuff to to make a model kit i think right now it's just kind of a tool right to so augment I, I don't see it ever replacing injection molded kits but i i see it you know, for guys like who paint figures, you could make a bust of literally like any person or superhero or historical figure or what. I mean, you could make anything you wanted, you know, and yeah. especially with laser scanning technology and, you know, all yeah. those things. So, yeah, it's an exciting mm -hmm. time to be sure. It is. It's a great time. Well, Scott, both, this has been Excellent. Love love hearing your perspective. We've been talking about this for a long time. It's been great getting to know you. Uh, we had a couple little technical glitches along the way, but we we overcame and persevered. Yes. But before we wrap up, remind everybody like your YouTube channel, your other forms of social media. How do people see your great work and see the videos and the other content that you're you're creating? Yeah, sure. They can uh, just, if they go to YouTube, just type in Small Soldier. You'll see me about four rows down underneath Small Soldiers, the movie. It's plastered everywhere. So that's the only thing. Trying to find me sometimes can be hard because of that movie. But if you type in Small Soldier, you'll find me on YouTube. And then I'm on uh, Instagram, Facebook. I've got a Facebook page as well, all named Small Soldier. And I'm also on Twitter. Not as I'm not as active on Twitter, but I'm there. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking your time, and uh, this has been fun. It has been. I appreciate you guys having me. It's it's uh, great being on the show. Oh, any anytime, anytime. We we hope to have you back. You sure. know, we do we do roundtables and be fun to do one. Uh, maybe on figure painting with some you know Warhammer yeah. painters and maybe some mm -hmm. other you know types of figure painters. You know, we'd love to have you back. I'd love it. Be great. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Scott. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk with you soon. And best of best of luck with Small Soldier. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. 
Well, that was really fun getting to know Scott. And the funny thing is, as soon as the video came up, hey, we're talking to Jack Black. Who knew? <laughs> All right, now it's time for our social media shout out segment. TJ, what's new and hip in the social media this week? All right, so this week I uh, want to start with YouTube. And I found, I think just by accident, actually what I think I was looking for, looking for videos of the ARL44 some sort of French tank that I know. Did I say it right? That is it, right? The ARL forty four. Yep, that's it. JB just picked one up. He's been talking about grabbing one, and I was just looking for one. And I found a build on YouTube of one by a small channel called SPG Models. Really interesting builder, um, with a kind of different style. And like I said, this is a really interesting style. It's uh, something a little different that you don't see a whole lot. Yeah, it's a really small channel. I mean, less like. 600 some subscribers it's only been around i think for a couple of months but if you want something uh interesting to watch and modeling that's a little bit different than you might see from some of the the big names out there i would i would check it out i thought it was interesting yeah the naval naval subjects that are done on the channel are absolutely gorgeous he models in 1350th and 1700 scale by the way i believe he's japanese because i did a google translate on his characters and it popped up as japanese oh okay well, cool. I love that ARL forty four. That is, dope. yeah. I thought I thought it was pretty slick. Um, it, I said it's like a really interesting painting technique um, that you just don't really see a whole lot of. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. As soon as I saw that his page, I I think I immediately clicked and say, you know what? I think he's either from he's a Japanese modeler or a Korean modeler. I find that their style is kind of distinctive in that regard. You know, the way they use. Just, just really punchy colors and tones, and I, I love it. So it's it, he's got a subscriber from me. Yeah, Scott, Scott's going to dig it. He's got a uh, video on his Samoa S thirty five. I missed that. I'm going to have to check that out. Oh, it does look good. All right, so heading on over to Facebook, I chose after hour scale models. I think this was another just random logarithm suggested to me. I think that's how I found. Uh, this page and I was just cruising around kind of bored the other day. My wife and kids are out of town, so I don't have a whole lot to do in the evening. So I was just cruising Facebook and, and found this page. I liked it. Um, and I was, I really like the work going on here. I'm loving all the world war one armored cars. I mean, you just, you know, copper state seems to have awoken a sleeping giant out there in the modeling community because, um, you just never used to see any world war one armored cars or similar vehicles. And now they're just all over and they're, I, I think they're just terrific. Yeah. I think that's, um, one of those cases where some people think that, you know, the companies are pushing these armored cars and that's why modelers are buying it. But I, I kind of think, I think personally it's the other way around as a fan of armored cars myself because they're just cool i think there was a there was an untapped market that once the first one came out people were clamoring for more and if a company wants to make money they're going to do market research and if they see people asking for armored cars they're going to make armored cars i don't think someone decided oh let's make a bunch of armored cars because i bet that's what will sell i'm pretty sure it was the other way around because i have no solid evidence on that but that's a little aside but yeah that's that's kind of what it struck the um, he's working on some sort of armored car. I don't know what it is. It's gray and brown, and it looks cool. Yeah, I think it's an ICM Ford of some kind. Yes, you're right. I just looked at it. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it looks pretty awesome. All right, and last but not least, for me, I'm going to go ahead and go with Basby Models on Instagram. 
this was another, I think just another random find on Instagram. And I really enjoyed uh, what was going on there. Yeah. Super Pershing is pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's really what I'm a big fan of the Pershing, especially the super Pershing. And I saw that and I thought it was really well done. Lots of neat little details. You normally can't go wrong with it with a nice, well done super Pershing. There's something about them. That's just amazing. Yeah, I believe he's a Russian modeler as well. Yes, I believe that is accurate. Yeah, so I, I have the last one for social media shout outs. You know, it's someone that we've featured before and we've actually interviewed. I got to give a shout out to Spencer Pollard's Ket and Craft Rad. He's built the new Tamiya one in a small vignette. Uh, it follows kind of the style for his legacy build. So very Francois Verlinden-esque. Very nice little composition. It'll be featured in Tamiya Model Magazine. I've looked at the pictures a lot lately. He's been sharing them on Instagram and Facebook. And I, and I just thought I wanted to give him a shout out. Really enjoyed that piece. And I look forward to reading the article when it comes out. That little piece was great. You know, the background buildings and the the scenery as well as the painting. And the, and the Tamiya box stock figures uh, turned out really, really great. So yeah, just top-notch work. I mean, wouldn't expect anything less from Spencer. Yeah. And you know what? While we're mentioning his name, I'll also point out he released a teaser cover of his Legacy Build books that he's going to be publishing. And the first one has the Panther A in the ditch. And I believe it's going to feature some of the models that are the, the military models. So I'm certainly excited for it. I already posted that said, I want one. And I think the first 50 or so get a limited edition of print, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I'm all for supporting him. Well, I will be sure to add those links to our Facebook page and they will be added in the episode notes as well. And now is the time for the main discussion for the evening, talking about Magnum Opus build. So what does that mean? A grand build that you've had in your mind for you know, maybe it's days, maybe it's years, but it's this ultimate build that one day you want to you wanna buckle up and you just want to get it done. And it could be anything from scratch building a vehicle that's never been released in injection molded plastic. It could be creating a massive diorama or something simply, you know, as small as a figure that wants to push your limits in artistry. I'll start off with my magnum opus and then I'll pass it around to the, to the guys to talk about theirs. And what I'd love for them to talk about is, you know, what is it? Why is it? And then how, what are your plans to do? How, how are you going to do it? When are your plans to do it? So I'll start off with, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to say two topics, but I'll focus down on one. And they're very similar in, in an experience of, of the influence. So I'm an armor modeler guy, but I'll be 100% honest. My magnum opus is a sci-fi creation. And it's something that I would love to build one day. And it is Galaxy's Edge at Walt Disney World Hollywood Studios or Walt Disneyland. I thought it was one of the coolest experiences in my life, walking around, seeing it, and it immediately struck me as something that I want to recreate this in miniature. I thought it was unbelievably inspiring. I Again, I, I, it, I'm, I'm at a loss for words because it was so much fun to experience, and I'd love to have an, a version of it on my desk. And Specifically, I would build, there's an area there with the Millennium Falcon, and then it's kind of in this, you know, it's in a low, it's in a dock area. I don't know the specific words for it. There's like a tower there. There's a bunch of crap everywhere. It's just super, super cool. And I'll, I'll get back to that. The other topic I was going to mention is the, I wanted to build Diagon Alley one day from Harry Potter as well. So I'm cheating. I'm saying too, but they're both for the same reason. It's that I went to the, I went to the studios in England and actually walked through Diagon Alley and some of the other major props they had for Harry Potter. 
And I thought it was, again, just so inspiring seeing it in real life. I would love to capture it in miniature someday, have it on my shelf, and it would certainly be a conversation piece. In addition to that, at Harry Potter Studios, they also have the model making room where they have this giant, giant Hogwarts castle, but then they also have everything from, you know, white cardstock models built out into like the legit model that was used on screen. So again, I have two, but I'd focus on Galaxy's Edge. It's something that I recently experienced this past year. I've always enjoyed Star Wars, but I thought if I could create that in miniature, I'd probably use probably use the 1144 scale Millennium Falcon. I wouldn't go with um, the big one. I think keeping the scene compact uh, and maybe try to incorporate other features around it. So there's like a cantina bar there and a few other things that I would love to build. I actually just watched the documentary on it on Disney Plus, which is sweet. Um, and I would highly recommend our listeners watch it if you have any cursory interest in Star Wars. Just really explains how they designed it. And it's 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 really interesting because it's not even, they wanted to create something that isn't from a movie. So when people go to it, they can have their own experiences and take that with them and be part of that Star Wars environment. And, and that's something, again, Magnum Opus, Galaxy's Edge. I'd use some kits, lots of scratch building. I'd even throw some of my imagination in there. But again, the armor model are going to sci-fi because they got the coolest stuff. So, you know, with that, I'd love to kick it over to Doug and hear what he has to say. All right, thanks. I actually think your idea is sweet. Galaxy's Edge is a pretty fantastic place. I'm going to stay with Star Wars as well, but I'm going to go off on a, on my own kind of tangent. Anybody that's listened to the show enough has heard me talk about my reptiles from time to time. And what I would love to build, and I still i am just trying to wrap my head around it still, and I don't know what I would use quite yet, is I want to build a terrarium for a California king snake that looks like one of the engines of an X-Wing. Because if you watch The Empire Strikes Back, when Luke is leaving Dagobah and he's cleaning his X-Wing up, he actually pulls a California king snake out of the engine. And funny thing is, if you look, if, if you search for it, you can find that snake bit Mark Hamill on the set and he drops it really fast. You know, I mean, I don't want that to happen. But I mean, but if I can find a way to build that in at least a half scale, maybe even closer to full scale, the front end, the opening of that engine, if I can make it give it enough cover, make it mold resistant. If I can, can, you know, make it hold the heat that it needs to, and then cover it up with glass or plexi so that the snake has a comfortable, plenty of space and comfortable room to move around. I want to do that. I want to have a terrarium with a California King snake living in an X-Wings engine. That's, that's kind of my goal. That's awesome. Yeah, that is. I think it'd be fun. Hey, Scott, what about you? Wow. I, I don't know how to follow those two up. This is really, really good. Now, I mean, in in all seriousness, my my dream subject is the I've talked about this many times before is the Colonial Viper from Battlestar Galactica. I have a couple of extremely rare large scale vipers. I have a one seventeenth scale and a one twenty four scale resin viper. The one twenty four scale is studio scale, and it uh, can tie its lineage back to some of the actual filming miniatures they use to make the show. Eventually, I would like to build that model and put it in the launch tube. The Galactica was basically like an aircraft carrier in space, and they had these launch tubes that they would catapult the fighters out. And so, yeah, I'd like to do a diorama of that studio scale Viper sitting on the catapult in a launch tube. TJ, what about you? Oh, man. I also, I kind of have two. The The simple answer is my fine molds, 172nd scale, Millennium Falcon. That's partially started. It's got the greeblies on the 
top half of the saucer glued on. That's it. I would love to finish that. And I think I could do it. It's just finding the time to do it. That that's the easy. I think the easier one. The the other thing, and I think I've I know I've talked to Scott about it, and maybe JB too. I love the Churchill three inch gun carrier, and I have one, and I have a vision of it in my mind about how I want it to look, because I'm hesitant to do it because everyone knows that Mike Rinaldi has done one, and Martin Kovac has done one, and they're both amazing. It's one of those things where. I'm not I'm not on the same level as those guys so it's not like oh I don't is I don't know it's just one of those things that that's such a unique vehicle that there's a model of that but but a lot of people just don't seem to build it like you just don't see them and I don't know why because Churchills are awesome and a Churchill with a big metal box on it with a huge gun sticking out of the front is even better so why people don't build it maybe it's because two of the best model makers on the planet have built one and they're on the internet and everyone can see them and people look at it and be like nah, I'm not going to do that that maybe that's it. And that's part of the reason that has kept me from doing that so far. But my vision is different than theirs in, in a way. What I would like to do is put tracker armor all over it, which I think Martin has on his just on the front, but I would put track armor pretty much on all three sides of the casemate. And I'm also kind of leaning towards after looking at a lot of Adam Wilder's crazy, what if Russian stuff, make it lend lease or captured or who knows just go wild with it because I never do that. And I can't, I can't remember who we were talking to, but it's one of those things where I, I know I can see it and think about it in my head. But then when I sit down to do it, I'm like, I can't do that. It's like with star Wars and you should be able to do whatever you want with star Wars and you can, and people do. And it's amazing. But me personally, when I sit down with the intentions of doing a crazy X-wing color scheme, I can't physically make myself do it because all I see is Luke's red five or wedges red two or red three, whichever one he was, or, you know, red leaders, X wing, like that's what I see. And I, I, and I'm just like, uh, you know, I go right back in the lane and, and stay there. And I'd like to make my Churchill gun carrier. So there's something crazy, not typical of what I do and hopefully make it really look really good. I, I don't know. I have all the stuff to do it. I just have to actually sit down and, and do it. Love that vehicle. Love that. It's going to be so cool. They're awesome. I was going to say, all good things come in threes. We have two. <laughs> I think it's fate. I'm no. just saying. No. <laughs> or I'm not even playing the same sport as those guys. <laughs> I can't compete with that. You could be considered a bat boy. I mean, you're, no, you're, not you're even. In the, you're no. in the stadium. I don't think we're playing now. <laughs> I don't think so. No. Well, no, that. That's great. And, you know, I'll wrap this segment up is uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. If you could talk about your Magnum Opus project, what's been on your mind? What do you want to bring to your bench and ultimately put on your display case? Um, We'd love to hear it. You know, I think it's very interesting that all of us picked a sci-fi subject. Maybe there's a coincidence there. I don't know. Again, listeners, please chime in, share your thoughts, and and we'd love to hear about them. And maybe we'll feature some on on a future episode. Now it's time for our main interview segment. Scott and I did an interview or roundtable with Len Pilhofer, Rob Booth, and John about their respective candidacy for IPMS USA national positions. This was a great discussion about each position and each candidate, why they're running, and what they hope to accomplish if they're elected. Even if you're not interested in the elections, I think you'll really enjoy what Len, Rob, and John have to say. They have terrific insight and experience in our hobby that's always relevant. So here you go. Enjoy. 
Welcome, listeners, to a special Plastic Posse podcast segment featuring three candidates who are running for office within the International Plastic Modeler Society's IPMS USA organization. We have with us Len Pilhofer, Rob Booth, and our very own John Bonani. Scott, it's been so long since I've spoken to you. Feels like we're strangers. <laughs> <laughs> also, have Doug Smith with us today. How are you all doing today? Before we dive into the details, let's get to know who everybody is. Um, Len, if you wouldn't mind, could you start us off with a little bit about yourself? Hi. Yeah, of course, Scott. Thank you. Name's Len Pilhofer. Uh, like just about everybody I've met in this hobby, started off as a kid and then adulting came along. Families, you know, young family, young father years ago. Kids are out of the house now. Semi-retired, did 20 years in the air, active duty in the Air Force, and then another eight more as a civilian. Found myself semi-retired after doing that for a while. Uh, got back into plastic modeling, rediscovered it. Consider myself a, a model builder the whole time. It's just moving around a lot with the with the military. Kept me from focusing on, you know, I had a stash wherever I moved, but build time was was minimal. And then uh, retired in San Antonio and hanging out at the local hobby shop there in town, one of the local hobby shops in town, got introduced to the guys in an armor club. I was building armor at the time and started hanging out with them. I had heard of Alamo Squadron, which is the IPMS chapter in San Antonio. I'd heard of them, but really didn't look into it. And I'd heard, had heard of IPMS, but didn't really dive into it or want to learn. It didn't, didn't dive into it too much. And they you know, talked about the local show model fiesta in san antonio so i went took my built with me to that show i think it was 2015 i think it was my first show and while i was there it was a, it's a good good size show while i was there i just looked around i said man this is a really fun time i really enjoy this but while i was there i also saw some rough edges of the show but instead of going up to somebody and complaining about how registration didn't go right or how you know judging could have been better or the awards presentation could have been better i joined the club i went to the next meeting joined the club. And then uh, a few months after that show, planning for the following year's show kicked off and they were asking for volunteers. So I believe instead of complaining, I believe in getting involved. So I got involved with the club, ended up running the Model Fiesta for a few years. Uh, become pre I became president of the club of Alamo Squadron for a year or two and got involved in all aspects of the club. And then I went to my first uh, national convention in 2017. I was like, oh, uh, this is this is heaven. I had a really good time. And on the way home from that trip, I went with uh, Rob Booth, who's on the call with us tonight, on the on the, on the the podcast with us tonight. Him and a fellow club member, Dick Montgomery, we all drove to Omaha together on the way home. We conceived a plan to do a bid for a national convention. And that's how they, they should I use the word, suckered, suckered me in to uh, be in the the uh, event director for the uh, which is which is now the SS Titanic of all the uh, conventions out there, but we are going to redo it. We'll get unlike the Titanic, we get a redo. So uh, the 2020 convention, I was had been the director for. And that's how I met John, who's on the call with us tonight. He's our seminar coordinator, and we've become good friends uh, in that role. And so yeah, just all around, get my dip my toe into all aspects of of the society. And uh, now I, I'm like, I see some things that I would like to improve upon for the society as a whole across the country. And so instead of complaining about it, I want to run for president. 
and I am running for president. And I've got some ideas and I got some friends on with me here tonight, John and Rob. We've shared some ideas of how we think nothing needs to be fixed. There's nothing broken. It's just we want to take it to the next level. It's like you're modeling. It's like your modeling skills. You know, you, you, you get to certain plateaus and when you get at a plateau, you don't look down. You look at the next plateau. How do I get to that next plateau? What do I have to learn? What are the techniques I have to master to get to that next plateau? And I look at it the same thing with the society. We're at a very, you know, conventions are fantastic. The leadership is fantastic. But how do we make it better? How do we make more people want to join the society? And that's why I'm running for president. And I think I've spoken enough. I want to give some time to Rob and John. All right. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, Rob, what about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a recently retired construction project manager and estimator in the general contracting business. I did about 45 years in that. I've been told that I'm naturally gravitated to modeling because it very much re- reflects the uh, the business that I've been in over the years. And that is the process of building a scale model uh, from a kit is very similar to my day job, which consisted of producing a unique and high quality finished product from a lot of different components according to a set of illustrated instructions that weren't always sufficient for that process. So key to all that was uh, was documenting things and, and going back and making notes to myself so I wouldn't forget what kind of paint I used and assembly sequences and stuff like that. So my day job and my hobby kind of melded together. And actually, the modeling helped me in my, in my everyday life, and uh, my everyday life helped me in the hobby. I got started building aircraft back in the mid-60s, late 60s, when my father was in Vietnam. Grew up in an Air Force family. Uh, My father was a Jolly Green pilot in Da Nang in 1967-68. That pretty well sold me. He was a hero. I made all kinds of models pretending to be him. And of course, uh, eventually modeling and boy scouting gave way to girl scouting and went on hiatus there for several years until I got married and, and had a son. Got back into modeling by making a, a mobile when he was a baby that I that we out of little 72 scale aircraft and put it above his crib and of course he cares nothing about any of that now but but it got me back into modeling and I've been looking to get better ever since joined Alamo Squadron a few years before Lynn did a couple of the old timers in the club I went to one of the shows there in San Antonio I guess they saw some promise in me and. As rough as some of my stuff was, uh, they pulled me in. I think I had done a Spitfire, which drew Lee Forbes to me uh, right off the bat. It wasn't a year or two later before he had me running for president in the club and and then uh, uh, had me do a few stints as as a judge, and I was hooked. And then from from there, I I went on to be the president of the club for a while and a couple years, and then uh, I've, I've been a a pretty key part, I think, of Model Fiesta, uh, our local show, for for quite some time. I've been the head, I've been the event director for several years, and then I've been kind of the de facto head judge. I think because nobody else really wants to do it. It's kind of like herding cats, but we 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 like to think we put on a pretty good show. So uh, it's a great hobby, and I love being a part of it. And John, I know uh, our listeners are kind of familiar with you, but give us a little bit of you know a little bit about yourself. First off, I'm not retired, uh, unlike my other two good friends. Unfortunately, I still have a long way ahead of me. In all seriousness, so I, you know, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the hobby and specifically IPMS. I don't think I've talked about that before on here. Um, you know, I've been a part of IPMS honestly. I think since I've been born, many of uh, the close family friends were club members. As soon as I could walk, I was going to 
club meetings. I've been going to IPMS shows, honestly, forever. And, you know, it's just been really fun. And like I said, a lot of these people have, have become family. Every year I look forward to the IPMS Nationals, and I think it's one of the best modeling venues or you know, modeling events in the world. It connects me with old friends and establishes new friendships. I've been going, I think my first Nationals was in the early 90s. I remember flying. My first airplane ride was actually to the Omaha Nats in 1994. I started judging at the Nats almost 12 years ago. I've been going solid uh, for the last 10 years, but from a local club perspective, I've been a member of IPMS Shenango Valley since I was a young kid. Same with IPMS Three Rivers, which I'm currently a member of. When I went to school in Florida, I, you know, I was part of the club at the school. And then when I worked for the Air Force for six years in Dayton, Ohio, I actually helped establish uh, right field scale modelers with some friends there. Dave Kokel, I got to give him a shout out. He's one of the one of the key founders of that club. So I've been a, involved with the society a lot. As Len said, I think he said it perfectly. Where the society isn't broken, we're at a plateau. I think there's an opportunity to grow the society uh, and make it better for everybody. And that's not only with the show, but the society itself. You know, with the way we interact with one another through different means of social media, email, website, all these things. I think there is an opportunity and. The three of us have talked a lot about what we hope to achieve, and and we hope to expand on it here during this show. and And I really appreciate you know my fellow co-hosts allowing me to uh, have this platform to 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 talk about it. Maybe I'm a little biased and slipped them a twenty, but uh, <laughs> they, they couldn't say no. But well, sticking with you for a minute, John, can each of you take a moment and explain the role that you're running for and what the responsibilities of that role are? Sure. So I'm running for second vice president. The roles and responsibilities for this role is the facilitation of the IPMS National Convention. So my role, if elected, would be to, I would be the representative of the National Society to the club that's hosting the Nationals. So I would be, you know, essentially their, their means of communicating to the National Society and facilitating, help facilitate the Nationals. Now, before that even begins, though, I'd like to say that this role also is responsible for collecting and reviewing the bids and then ultimately announcing the decision when the next show, where it is going to occur. So that, that's really the, the two-cent version is this role is responsible for helping facilitate the national convention and ensuring that local club has all of the resources that need, they need to be successful. All right. Well, you, you you seem to be a bit of a Nats junkie, so it sounds like something you'd be really good at. <laughs> yeah, I go anyway, so I might. I mean, <laughs> you might. Right. As, I'm yeah. going to be in the neighborhood anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Rob. What about your position? Well, I'm running for secretary. I'll kind of get a dig in with John here because when Lynn and I first started talking about running for office here, he was going to run for president, and I was going to run for the second VP slot, but I'm an old guy. The business that I was in for all those years was really, really heavy on documentation, and I got very good at that. Since uh, John's so much younger than I am and full of firth and, and good ideas, I thought, well, I'll just bow out and run for secretary, and I'll just keep all the records of all this stuff and make sure that, uh, that it all gets written down. That's one of the things we did locally. We came up with a, a notebook as it were, that uh, we, we affectionately call Model Fiesta for Dummies. Um, and it's, it's everything and anything that you need to know about how to, how to put on our successful local show. 
And that's very much what I'm, I'm hoping to do as the secretary, along with the other things. You know, you, you assist the president at the meetings and you function as the corresponding secretary and assist any of the other officers as needed, you know, with their correspondence. And, and then uh, you kind of a liaison between the foreign branches of IPMS and, and the USA branch. So it's a, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very documentation heavy position and I'm used to that. I have a feeling Dennis will be, uh, be happy to turn that over to somebody at some point reading what's, what's going on here. Len, what about you? So I think the uh, officer president is uh, pretty visible to a lot of people. So I'm not going to go too deep into explaining, you know, it's the most, uh, like I mentioned, most visible of what I, and I've actually been exposed to a few of the e-board meetings uh, in the lead up to the decision on whether to hold 2020 or postpone it. I was, as the event director, I was uh, sitting in some of the e-board meetings with, with the, with the e-board, current e-board, and I got to see, you know, firsthand what happens with meetings. And essentially the president is there, you know, he schedules the meetings, make sure that, you know, everybody's in attendance and if they're not can cover down on that person's uh, responsibilities, but really just making sure that the, that the, the business is conducted. My philosophy as, as a potential, if I were to be elected president is to not get in everybody's chili is let each of the, each of the persons run their department, run their area as they see fit, but the president should also be ready to step in and provide guidance and coaching to make sure that all the cats are, are running in the same direction. Because I think all of us have experience with working in organizations where cats uh, tend to to head off in their, in their own direction. That's just human nature. I view the role as president is to make sure uh, that at least everybody's going, all the cats are at least walking in the same direction, maybe at their, at their individual paces, but that's fine. Because in the end, you got to remember where this is a this is a social club. You know, model building is supposed to be fun. The role of the president should be to maintain some order uh, and some discipline to make sure that you know, for one, that the convention can can execute every every summer on time. But also, there's a lot of other aspects of the club, a lot of the society that that need managing. And the president uh, should just keep his keep a loose thumb on all those areas and allow the, the people in those departments to to run it the way they see fit. Well, sticking uh, sticking with you, uh, Len, for this next question, if you were to be elected, what is one thing that you would hope to achieve during your tenure? One of the biggest things that came, came comes to mind uh, over the past several months, once we got serious about uh, running for office, was uh, as much as we all none of us like COVID and the response to COVID, how it really stressed our society. I think it stressed the local meetings. I know when I was still in San Antonio, uh, when COVID was going strong, uh, it put a lot of stress on the club because we couldn't meet. And there's always, every month, it's like, when are we going to get back together? When are we going to get back together? And we had to wait for you know local governments to say when we you know, meetings could happen again. But at the same time, with every crisis, I think there's a silver lining. With every, every bad thing that happens in our history, there's positive comes of it. And one of the things I saw with our club, and I think it's happening, a lot of clubs is technology, the use of technology to bring people together. You know, Zoom, uh, you know, the biggest example, uh, go-to meeting, another, you know, another technology for bringing people together. You know, this was, we're using Zencaster. I realize this is for podcasting, but it's bringing us all together. And it got me thinking, what if the society were to start utilizing technology like this and so that the local chapters would not be so isolated from month to month and we could get people cross plat, you know, cross city cross chapters start talking to each other and look our you know our convention 2020 now 2023 we've got a guy who's not even from san antonio a non-texan we allowed on the team 
Yeah, we they took some <laughs> took some harumph harumphs in the in the local you know in the uh, local animal squadron decision meetings to let John on the team, but uh, it, it's working out. You know, if we, we were able to hold our convention last summer, John would have done a fantastic job, and he is going to do a fantastic job in 2023 because he just dials in. And it got me thinking: what if you know members of the e board dial into various chapter meetings around the country if they were invited, you know, put the offer out there. You know, if I were president, I would offer my time up to local chapters and dial in for a half hour and say, you guys, what, do you, what questions do you guys have? What do you guys want to see the society go? Uh, where do you want to see it go? What do you want to see it do for you? And then also got me thinking, there are so many great modelers out there, in, both in our country and around the world. What if we were to use this technology to bring those modelers into local meetings or into a national meeting where P, the local chapter members could dial into a, a, an online meeting and talk to some of the big names in the hobby? You know, what if we were to score the president of Tamiya, you know, or the president of, you know, some of these big, big corporations? out there and tell them you have the audience of the, you know, the entire American modeling community, you know, for a half hour to an hour, you know, just think what kind of discussions that could, uh, that, that could garner, you know, just think of the possibilities. So that's the kind of thing that I would like to do if I were to be elected president is to start utilizing technology more to bring down walls and bring down barriers and start and start bringing chapters across the country uh, together more often. Well, Rob, you're speaking my language. I mean, that's the core principle that we started the Plastic Posse on is using, you know, this technology to break down barriers between genres and age groups and, you know, to bring the community together in a way that leverages the good parts of social media. Obviously, there's some bad parts as well, but oh, yeah. um, uses the technology that's available to us here in 2021. John, what about you? What's something that you see yourself wanting to accomplish in your tenure if you're elected? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. And I, and I think there is an opportunity to really capture the information from previous shows and put it into a kind of standardized way of conducting an IPMS national convention. You know, for, for our listeners, just, just to let everyone know, Every year, the national convention is hosted by that local host chapter. A lot of times, you know, they have a history behind it. So, you know, for instance, uh, the Columbus Group, Omaha, they've they have hosted national several times. They have their method of doing it, and when the keys get turned over to them, they open the door and bring their party in. What happened though, is sometimes with with new clubs, is they've never done it before, and they essentially start from scratch. Len is an excellent example of that. You know, his his club had minimal information and put together this killer show. Unfortunately, it, it you know the circumstances beyond our control prohibited it from happening. But I can assure you, when it occurs in 2023, it's going to be off the chart. And it was all done hard work and determination from scratch, essentially in a lot of cases. And what I want to do is kind of alleviate that burden from the local chapters to kind of have a way of doing it and get an idea of how to do it before they even bid. So understand, you know, what commitments there are to this in terms of manpower, time, you know, finance, all of these things. Is the information there today? It is in some capacity, but I believe you do have to look for it. What I want to do is make this process easy, transparent, and really enable more clubs to step up and host an IPMS national convention and you know, ultimately drive more people to the show, drive more membership, and really grow the hobby within the United States. Rob, what about you? The, the thing I would like to see come out of all of this is uh, I, I would very much like to put down a set of policies and procedures following on what John and Lynn have said here 
on how how to run a professionally well done national convention for the members of IPMS USA. And as as John alluded to, and as Lynn and I found out with a couple of our other San Antonio guys, it was the information was out there, but it was very very difficult to find. And we felt like that was that was not the right way to do things. This stuff shouldn't be you know stuffed away in some secret cache or or you know you have to you have to ask for things to to get answers to your questions. There should be a very simple RFP as as I was used to dealing with in the construction business. That's a request for proposals because that's basically what the eboard has the local chapters or consortiums of chapters do is respond to a request for proposals to host the nationals. And if there's not a a very simple laid out document that they can follow and know what information that they have to assemble and put together and the numbers that they need to uh, make work, then you're you're grasping at straws and and it's 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 kind of a disservice and I think it turns off a lot of local chapters and local groups from from even trying to do this and that's I think that's not what the society is about. The society is about all of us as a group of modelers and and trying to bring us together and each each national tends to have its own local flavor. We, we've kind of looked at a little research. A, f- a friend of mine did some research and, and looked into where the conventions have been held in, in previous years. And, and there's a there's a lot of chapters in IPMS USA, but it's it's a relatively select group of clubs and regions that have managed to be able to, to master this and put together conventions. And there's, quite frankly, there's been some, some really good conventions. I've been to several of them. And as I understand it from talking to some folks, there's been some somewhat of disastrous conventions in the past that, well, I didn't attend, but I've certainly heard enough stories about it to know that you don't want those kind of things happening again. So I'm just, I'm hoping I can help contribute to put putting that thing together in some sort of a structured way that will will make it easier for more local clubs to to be able to participate in the in the hosting of a, of a national convention in the future. One of the barriers that sounds like you're saying to putting on a really terrific IPMS nationals is sharing the experience of previous nationals and kind of opening up a playbook as you guys are describing that to help kind of get things started quickly up front because of the amount of work that needs to be done. Yeah. For example, let me pipe in real quick. Uh, one of the, the ch- hurdles we had and getting ready for 2020 was just, for example, the door prizes. There's no continuity from the previous years as to who contributed to door prizes, which corporations, which hobby shops, et cetera, et cetera, which clubs uh, contributed to that. And we started from scratch. We we had to look up, you know, I contacted uh, Mike Moore in Chattanooga, said, hey, Mike, who is your door prize coordinator? Oh, so-and-so. Okay, cool. Do you have his number? Do you have his name? Do you have his email? Yeah, yeah, here it is. And so I emailed the door prize coordinator uh, from Chattanooga, who then put me in touch with the door prize uh, coordinator from Phoenix, who then put me in touch with the door prize coordinator from Omaha. And we kind of pieced together, you know, well, how do you guys, you know, who'd you reach out to? And so why can't we have a, a standard list of door prize contributors? You know, they can be the big corporations and then we can have the, the, the hobby shops, the, the somewhat larger hobby shops across the country, the ones that actually tend the nationals. And we have a, a set list with contact information that we then hand to the chapter that wins the bid for that year's show. 
and we ask, okay, you know, the national e-board says, okay, who is your door prize coordinator? Oh, it's so-and-so. Okay, here's the list. Start with this list. Go down, call them, email them, tell them, you know, here's the dates of the show. Would you like to contribute to door prizes? And the same thing can be said of vendors. The same thing can be said of the seminars. The same thing can be said. So many different aspects of the convention can be standardized, not to tell the local chapter, in, you know, these people are coming, but say, no, here's where you start. You invite who you want from this list and you determine how it's going to be set up at your at your convention in your city. And the, and the e-board is here just to provide you with the resources. Yeah, I think to expand on what Lynn was just saying, there's several facets to, to putting together a NATS. He gave the example of door prizes, but the contest committee, they're pretty good at running their, their section of this thing. But as just for talking purposes here, if something was to happen and Mark Persichetti and his wife somehow couldn't get to the show, we'd be in trouble. Uh, I don't think anybody else would know how to, to do any of the judging stuff. So getting their, their procedures and their policies and that sort of stuff put down on paper and as simple as providing some, uh, providing some junior leadership under, under that arm of the of the convention to to learn the ropes and how all that stuff works so that you know heaven forbid something happened and and they couldn't attend the convention we wouldn't be starting from scratch and and twiddling our thumbs on how to do the judging same thing can be said of of the vendors and uh, as as Lynn mentioned and then uh, you know the registration process all all of those pieces and parts of the convention that basically run the same from from year to year to year, there's no need to recreate the wheel on that stuff. It could be set down and, and you know, you have a guidebook to follow on on how to make it work. That's not to say that it doesn't get tweaked from year to year uh, as you improve on the process. That was one of the things that we were big on in the construction business was how to how to achieve continuous improvement. So you listen to people and you take their feedback and you make improvements where necessary. We we've been doing this for a lot of years and it's been it's been successful, but it but it really needs to be really needs to be set down. Otherwise, we're going to come up with another disaster one of these years, and nobody wants that. And a lot of this has already been kind of covered here and there, and in, in all your statements. But uh, what opportunities do you see on the horizon for IPMS as a whole? Yeah, great question, Doug. You know, I, I think there is an opportunity for IPMS right now to grow its membership, and, and it's through various means. As as mentioned before, you know, we hit on a few of those, just, and maybe I'll just pick on social media in general. I think social media can be leveraged to really uh, gain gain membership traction, gain, you know, bring more people in to tell the IPMS story to. I think one of the things is there's there's just not a lot of information maybe out there about IPMS or the information that is out there is actually kind of hard to find. I think there's opportunities with the website, but but going back to social media, it's it's all about using those different platforms to, you know, create that IPMS story, communicate it to everyone and then build that community of modelers that hopefully will join the national organization to support the hobby within the United States. One thing looking at social media specifically, it's instead of just having one person do it, have that person have a team of members. What What's most important, I guess we should talk about too, is volunteers. I think there's an excellent opportunity to leverage these platforms to get volunteers for IPMS. You know, I, I will come to IPMS's defense where a lot of people say, oh, you know, IPMS could do this, could do that. What really it takes is someone to step up to do that. And I would love to be able to tell that IPMS story to people to get them motivated, to get them inspired 
pitch in their, you know, pitch in their hand and, and help out. And that's everything from social media to helping run the show, or maybe even starting a local chapter in your area. I think all of these things, you know, there is an opportunity with this communication methods to tell that story, get more people involved and help grow the organization. And, and like I said, it, it, all it takes is people help. That's, that's the biggest thing. And, you know, once you get involved, it, it's a snowball effect. And I, and I think, you know, it certainly is, is given me a lot of joy. As I've mentioned, I've met a lot of my great friends through it, helped establish one club, which was awesome. Felt really bad when I moved away. So I, I would encourage more modelers um, to join the organization and, and step up and volunteer because it is a lot of fun. Let me expand upon John's answer. And one of the biggest things I've seen as an observer, as a member of IPMS, at both the local show and then also at uh, the larger national conventions, uh, what I've noticed, and this is the hobby in, in, in general as well, IPMS, and this is a very general statement, and I know I'll probably get you know emails after I say this from people, a lot of hate mail, but I'm going to say it anyway. IPMS seems to be focused on Spitfires and Tiger Tanks and you know other genres that are very similar to that. We have a lot of master, many, many master builders that can build a you know fantastic prop-driven aircraft or a fantastic, you know, World War II tank uh, or ship, a lot of fantastic figure painters. Um, but the hobby is going in a direction that I think is pop fiction, meaning, you know, your Marvel universe, your DC Comics universe, Star Wars. Holy cow. You can just look at all the Bandai kits out there that are that are sci-fi. And I didn't Bandai start off as a, you know, they did do traditional aircraft and armor kits, you know, decades ago. And then Gundam came along. You know, there I dropped that magic word Gundam. But, you know, all this stuff going on that's not Spitfires and Tiger Tanks. Now, I love Tiger Tanks. I think I have 17 unbuilt Tiger Tanks in my stash. Um, and I will continue to build Tiger Tanks, you know, until I'm in my final hospital, hospital bed someday. Not saying do away with that stuff, but... But be aware what's on the horizon. Be aware what kids today would rather pick up off the shelf and because so, they can't relate to a Tiger Tank or a Spitfire. They just don't. We do because when we were kids, you know, younger, and especially Rob, haha, Rob, there's my, there's my poke at your age. But yeah, that, that's what was on the shelf when we were kids. And I'm 51. I saw Star Wars, you know, when I was in first grade, you know, the, the episode four. And, you know, I love Star, I love building Star Wars kits. Love it. So I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of, of those kits, but that's what that's what the future is going to be is is this is merger of of pop fiction, you know what's what kids are seeing in the movies, what they're you know not even movies anymore, it's YouTube, you know it's whatever they're pulling down over the internet onto their onto their devices onto their phones. That is what's going to inspire them to build, and how do we capture that as IPMS and make sure we don't go out with the dinosaurs, you know, and the dinosaur kits that always make it to shows every year. Uh, how do we make sure we, we don't go away with the dinosaurs and we stay current and fresh with what the, the general population wants to build? That's, that's, that's what I would have an eye toward as an IPMS leader. I think that's a great perspective because the, the genres and the types of subjects that you mentioned are the entry points for so many young people. I would add to that um, wargaming like World of Tanks and War Thunder. I think that's a huge um, conduit of yep, new agree. people into the hobby. And then an even bigger conduit of the hobby that I think is untapped is wargaming miniature painters. You know, whether it's Warhammer or historical, you know, figures, a lot of people are painting figures and 
there always seems to be kind of those dividing lines. And so, yeah, embracing those other genres and opening those doors and bringing people into the hobby through, you know, what is a lot of times referred to as non-traditional type genres, I think is going to be really, really key. Sure. One of the things that we've uh, we've tried to do locally here in San Antonio with Model Fiesta is is reach out to uh, a few of the young guys who are instrumental in the in the Gundam groups, I guess, in San Antonio, trying to work with them and, and be inclusive of them in our local show get some feedback from them to say, okay, you know, we've, we've got a Gundam category or a robotics type. We, we started out in miscellaneous with that. Then it, it grew into its own specific category for Gundams. And, and from there, we every year we try to reach out to them and, and ask, okay, how do you subdivide these things? Because we're starting to get more and more examples of these things. So what are the what are the logical class or category division points for for the Gundams? I, I don't know anything about them. I mean, I'm an airplane guy, and and that's what I do. But if we don't reach out to these young folks and and bring them into the organization as a whole, they're going to go off and do their own thing, which is which is not what we want. The other thing is, you know, once you get them in, if you if you draw them in with the Gundams, and that's what they like, as they get older. They may they may become more interested in in uh, figures or dioramas or aircraft or tanks uh, and learn about that and learn history through that. One of the things that I'm concerned about is we don't seem to be teaching enough history in school these days, and the modeling community seems to to be very astute at giving history lessons on the subjects that we model. Yeah, maybe I can pick up. You know, Len and Rob both hinted at ages of prospective members. You know, one of the things I think where the greatest opportunity is and probably the most important demographic in my mind for the health of the society would be individuals between 25 and 40 years old, young professionals. I think this is the demographic that is most important for the society to attract and retain. I myself fall in that category. Um, but, you know, I, I, I will use myself as an example. You know, you have disposed, you've just graduated college, most likely, or trade school. You know, you, basically, you've started your professional career in one capacity. Um, you're probably, you know, maybe dating or married. You probably don't have kids. You, you have some extra free time and you have some disposable income. You know, if you can get into the hobby, it's, you know, and some of my friends have at this age, it's, it's, it's a great hobby at that age. And I think that demographic is, is the most important to attract into the society. And I think there's a lot of them out there. I think there's a lot of people, a lot more than people think, build models. And we see it in social media every day. Five years ago, if you asked me, what, where's, where's the hobby going? My answer probably would be different than the one I give you today, based on my experiences in social media alone. And when I say social media, it's not only Facebook, it's not only Instagram, but it's also YouTube. I mean, you have content creators coming out of the woodwork that are doing some of the best work I've ever seen in the hobby, and they're younger than me. I mean, some of them are even in their teenage years. These people are fantastic. They started the hobby somehow. Where did they get it from? I, I don't know, but you know what? That's the kind of talent and the and you know the perspective, the the kind of people that the society really needs to leverage and hopefully attract in. Um, I, I think again, it's the most important aspect of uh, you know recruitment for for that for an age demographic. How about partnering with other organizations like AMPS, Wonderfest, Auto Clubs, things like that? I'm all for it. I would if I was president of IPMS, I would definitely you know extend a hand and see where there is a um, 
like an event diagram, you know, where there's, where there's crossover between the two organizations and work with, uh, you know, with AMPS, that's an obvious one, you know, it's armor modeling and, you know, we have an extensive armor category in our national convention. Where can, you know, may, where can AMPS work with IPMS to make the, the armor uh, experience even better? With Wonderfest, I know they're sci-fi fantasy based. Uh, where can we work with them to make the IPMS sci-fi and fantasy better? and more inclusive for, for those builders. So that's, yeah, I would be very open to extending uh, a hand or extending a line of communication to those organizations and say, you know, where there's common interests and where we can save resources by working together, let's work together. Yeah. And, and I think from, you know, my role uh, that I'm running for, for specifically the national convention, I'd love to speak with, you know, not only past show chairs of the IPMS nationals, obviously, but you know, Wonderfest is doing some great stuff. You know, even outside of the conv- the competition itself, there. You know, they're bringing in people from you know who were in sci-fi series. You know, they have different types of ways of interacting with their attendees, and I think IPMS can learn a lot from that and make the show even better. So I would love you know in this position to not only talk to Amps, Wonderfest, which is probably one of the coolest shows out there, I think, and the, you know, the car people as well, you know, the, the NNL convention, I, again, they have a massive following of cars. What can, what can we learn from that to make our, you know, our convention better and more, you know, more open to that genre of scale modeling. So I, I think there's a ton of opportunity there to really, uh, you know, cross pollinate, cross communicate, and then cross promote as well. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. I, I think that, uh, in particular, the national convention is a, excellent opportunity to to reach out to other genres and other clubs and send somebody that can can do a demonstration or a, or a seminar on on your special genre of what you do if you keep it to yourselves the rest of us are never going to know about it uh, it's one of the things we've tried to do locally that, that at least seems to be successful before covid hit was we we started trying very hard to focus on the how-to of modeling and we we started trying to do a lot more seminars at our local show from from the simple basics and the in the make and takes for the kids to uh, to bringing in some guys that are that are really good figure painters and and having them sit down and show how to show how to paint a figure and make it look good and we've had uh, we've had guys do demonstrations on how to do decaling so that they disappear uh, that that seems to to be a mystical thing to a lot of guys in the hobby, but it's, it's, it's all about sharing knowledge and, and sharing your experiences. Uh, it's, I find myself listening to a lot of podcasts when I go out and take my walk in the morning now, and I've listened very intently to John tell me, you know, how he does a tank, even though I'll probably never do one, but I'll, you know, I'll pick up something that helps me with my aircraft modeling, or, or I've been getting into cars lately, you know, something I think will work on that really is a, a national convention is an excellent opportunity to exchange information and meet other people. And I mean, I've met people from all over the country and all over the world, actually, uh, at the conventions I've been to and still talk to them and visit with them occasionally on the on the internet about things they're doing and how they do it. And, you know, it's it's that open, free exchange of information that, that I think we're, we're missing out on and not tapping well uh, as an organization to kind of revisit what uh, Lynn was talking about earlier, making, you know, being, being more in touch with the worldwide modeling community. I, I think that's a great point. And um, I kind of want to circle back around to something that Doug mentioned and you guys kind of touched on, but outside of the national convention, 
How can IPMS leverage social media more through outlets like podcasts? For instance, the current um, Secretary of Retention and Recruitment, Dave Knights, is on Plastic Model Mojo, and he seems to have had a pretty uh, significant impact as far as bringing people to back to IPMS membership and new people to IPMS membership, primarily on Plastic Model Mojo, but also on some of the other podcasts. I think we've had a role in really driving, um, helping to drive, let's not get too ahead of ourselves, but helping to drive what looks like to be record numbers of people to the Vegas convention by constantly every two weeks talking about that. And so how can IPMS do a better job? And and Len, I'm going to start with you in leveraging social media, whether it's within the organization or just partnering with it. I'm smiling and the guys are watching me on camera smile because my answer to that is yes. (laughs) Yes to everything. Um, It's just, no, there's so many opportunities out there. I mean, every day, I I, like just today, I had no idea about Zencaster. had no idea this thing was out there. And you send me a link to it and here I am and we're creating a podcast. I'm like, this is fantastic. This is exciting. And we live in a world right now where every day a new technology or a new platform or a new something is being used by somebody. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, man, how, how, how can I use this? How can we use this? And I know we, we touched on this before we started, you know, before we officially started this, um, this, this podcast is how do we find time as modelers? You know, it's only 24 hours in a day. You know, how do I cut into my modeling time to start using this technology to make the modeling better, to make the the community better, the community around modeling better? Man, we can go on and on all night about this, but uh, let me just say that if I were to be president, if I were elected president, I would push very hard at what the existing technologies are out there, the existing platforms, uh, social media platforms, the one that seems to have the ones that seem to have the most reach, and how does IPMS get on those platforms and use them? on a more on a routine basis and just one idea that i'll give right now is i um attended the uh northeast new york chapter meetings now that i'm a uh, i moved up here to the uh, upstate region of new york uh, new york state and we had a guest uh speaker harvey lowe who's out of toronto give a hour-long presentation on vinyl cutting machines you know those machines that look like printers but you cut your own masks for for airbrushing instead of decaling what a fantastic presentation he gave to the point where I'm looking at vinyl cutters right now on, on Amazon. And I'm, once I get my studio set up here in my new house, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get myself one. But I, what I bring up, the reason I bring it up is, you know, wouldn't it be great to have that video presentation that he gave accessible to everybody across IPMS? Why can't we have a library of everybody who does their own YouTube videos, uh, just have a library. If you're, if you're an IPMS member, we, you know, we ask permission to stamp, uh, you know, IPMS seal on your on your video. Uh, it's still, you know, yours. You know, it's still copyrighted to you. But you know, as an IPMS member, you're sharing it across the across the society. And we have a library of how-to videos that are published on YouTube, and we we store, you know, we have links to them at a single location on on the IPMS website. So IP member, uh, IPMS members know where to go and they can check it out. I realize, you know, the, the forum is probably the, the next best thing that we have in IPMS for something like that. But uh, a dedicated library would be even better. So you don't even have to jump on the forum. You just go to and then pick your topic and see what videos are out there. By member by of, you know, videos of members producing their own content. I think it would be fantastic use of, of this technology. 
You know, I, re- I remember, Lynn, I think it was the Kansas City Convention, one of the first ones that I went to. I was so excited. I had, I had just gotten a laptop. Lee Forbes and I walked through the, uh, it happened to be over the first weekend of a month. And so our club meetings are on the first Thursday. Lee Forbes and I walked around the, the contest room in Kansas City there with my laptop, and I kind of had it flipped around where I could use the camera. Lee was pointing out certain models that he thought were excellent, and the guys back in San Antonio were all gathered around somebody else's laptop there at our club meeting, and it was just, it was an awesome experience. We, we tried to bring them to the Nationals uh, there at the club meeting, and we got, man, we got all kinds of kudos and thank yous when we got back from that. And it was, you know, it was 10 minutes of walking around the contest room, but there was a lot of guys there that would never get the the Nationals experience had we not done that. And that's the kind of, the kind of technology that I think we're, we're touching on here is to be able to bring those kinds of experiences to, to people maybe who wouldn't otherwise be able to get to it. You know, I, I, I can see uh, video... Uh, video document, mini documentaries, so to speak, of, of a Nationals show. The slideshow on the contest at the uh, contest awards is probably half the battle on that. But uh, that, yeah, it's exciting how we can use this technology to, to make the society better and, and better for all of our members. John, I've got a question for you. I'm going to throw a hard one at you. How do we leverage some of this technology to connect chapters to other chapters and all of the chapters to the national organization so that it's a conduit in both directions for information for new members and existing members. So Scott, that you ask a really good question. You know, how do you tie local chapters to each other and the national organization? And I and I think it's through existing social media avenues. The idea of crafting a website and doing something, uh, you know, with internal, you know, cost time, all that is out the window. I think there's plenty of, you know, avenues today. We're already seeing it with Facebook as one. And, and I know not all members embrace Facebook and that's okay, but maybe there's an opportunity to do some cross platforms. But, you know, I, I think it's the first start is, is just, uh, you know, maybe that, I think, you know, a lot of chapters do have Facebook pages. IPMS has a Facebook page. And the easiest way to establish those lines of communications for quick messages is is through social media. Now, now I also want to acknowledge that IPMS does have existing chains of communication or lines of communications and chains of command. So for, for our listeners, you know, IPMS has local chapters, but within those local chapters, the United States is broken out into regions. So local chapters report to their regional coordinator, who then reports to the national organization. So there is a conduit of communications right now. I will say it's all through email. And as we all know, you know, email sometimes is, you know, it seems easy, but sometimes it is kind of hard. Emails do get lost. Emails do get you know, bounce back. Um, if there was a way to blast this information out into, um, you know, into a, into a group, that would, that would be great. Like an IPMS members 
only kind of Facebook group or other social media type of uh, environment where it's if you are a dues paying member, you are granted access. Now, again, as I mentioned this, it takes volunteers. We would need at least one or two people to, to work on this. So I, I want to acknowledge that with every idea comes a manpower restraint. And, you know, maybe I can use some of my, you know, sales experience to bring people along and convince them that this is a worthy cause to join because we certainly need their help to execute these things. Let me add on to that. And I'm just thinking out loud. I tend to do this. I, I start when I get in meetings like this, I start to think. And so maybe I shouldn't go on a podcast with that with unfiltered <laughs> thought, but I'm going to go do this anyway. It seems to me. My observation, the strongest links between chapters, at least I just moved from Texas. Uh, I was in San Antonio for a number of years. And it seemed like the chapters in San Antonio, Houston, Austin, Dallas, Central Texas, and even uh, a club in Louisiana, the strongest ties we had to each other were our local shows. There's a core set of members in each chapter that always showed up at the other chapters shows and we all knew each other and we, we we've become really good friends uh and that's the strong in, in my opinion that's the strongest link how do you take those links that already exist because of those shows and then how do you introduce technology into the you know into the mix so that those links become even stronger between those chapters and kind of like a network thing then how do you grow that network even further and then all of a sudden you start seeing these networks start attaching to each other across the country how I don't have an answer to that yet, but I'm writing notes down right now as we uh, as we're talking about this, and uh, it's just a, a just food for thought. Lynn, as as you were saying that, I was I was thinking back to when we were trying to put together all of our stuff on our bid for the Nats and the and the team that we put together. I, I should say it, the the convention is in San Marcos, and I guess unofficially we're the San Antonio was the host chapter, but it really it really was an effort. Uh, of Region 6, and specifically, uh, mostly the, the Texas clubs within Region 6, we, we, didn't, we didn't have enough people with, I, I won't say that it wasn't the desire, but it was the experience level and the, and the uh, capacity, capacity the, the, uh, to, yeah. to, to put together a Nats bid. A lot of them had family you know, responsibilities. They just could not dedicate to the, to the Nationals, which is under, understandable. So we we reached out to to as as Lynn said the network and the guys we knew in in the other local clubs and said hey we want to do this but it's it's too much for our club to take on by itself and who do you have with these particular areas of expertise within your club I mean vendor coordinators and and folks to do the raffle and and that sort of thing and boy I was just astonished at the number of people that reached out and said absolutely we want to be a part of this. And uh, I'm here to tell you, we couldn't have, we couldn't have done it without them, and we we won't be able to to do it in 2023 without them. And they're all excited about it. It's it's that kind of networking and that kind of interaction that I think if we can tie together, as Lynn said, on in you know through technology and virtually attend each other's meetings and and that sort of thing, it just it's just a natural way to grow grow the membership and grow the society. And, and and promote and let's let's face it there there tends to be a lot of competitiveness in in this in this hobby I mean particularly if you go to the nationals and you go to the to the contest things get very competitive I mean that's why you go there is to to show your stuff off but to be competitively cooperative I, I'll, I'll put it that way to, to, to build a better 
build a better place to do this. Yeah, and and I'd like to just continue on just real briefly. And Scott hit at what you said, where it's not only chapters talking to chapters, but I'd also like to open it more. How do members communicate to the national organization? You know, what's their conduit? You know, a lot of them have feedback. How do we process it? How do we even get it? You know, one of the options that we could hold is a town hall. Have it open to all dues-paying national members. You know, the e-board opens it up. Maybe it's once a quarter. Maybe it's, you know, I think maybe once a quarter is appropriate or, or maybe once or twice a year where it, it's an avenue for, hey, if you are a dues-paying member, you have some recommendations, you have comments, you have anything that you want to communicate to the national membership, here's your chance. And it's, you know, open and everyone is there to listen. And, you know, fortunately, Rob can take notes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe I'm just thinking out loud. I. To, to bring that line of communication, you know, available to members to, to make sure they're heard. What about questions about IPMS leveraging its membership with um, model companies, with local hobby stores, with retailers? Are you guys okay with that? Oh, yeah. I'm all for uh, growing that uh, even more. Um, but I would go into it with an eye toward, you know, all these companies are are in existence for one reason and that's to 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 make money got it you know everybody you know i have my job everybody in this in this call has their jobs uh so i would not be going to approaching various companies with you know what are you going to do for my pms i would look at it from a point of view as you know what can ipms do to help you grow your business because if their business grows the modeler benefits with the range of products that are, are that are available the different subjects that are that are available. I've never liked approaching companies, you know, even with with a modeling hat on, saying, you know, what you know, what are you going to do for me? I was like, no, nah, that doesn't feel, that doesn't sound right. We'll give them an avenue, we'll give them a platform, we'll give them a, a space to 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 promote their product, advertise our product with members. But we got to remember that we have to, you know, we have to incentivize a company to be able to, to grow their business and, and give them incentive to, to become part of our circle. Yeah. You know, I want to pick up off this. I, I think it's important that, that this is talked about and Len has a perfect answer for that. Uh, you know, it's all about, you know, again, what can IPMS do for the company? And specifically, we don't, we don't, this is going to be tough to say, but to me, it doesn't need IPMS, mini craft, border models, these major manufacturers, I'm going to be blunt and honest. They don't need IPMS. What company? What companies? And really, it's I should say individuals. Where I see IPMS being a benefit to companies, specifically cottage industry companies. I'll just use an example: um, Hellcat Models. Good friend of mine, Scott Dimmick. He does fantastic work. He's making M3 Stewart conversions that are he's 3D modeling himself and printing and selling. But he's only going through Facebook. If IPMS could help them get the word out to different members, maybe different platforms, and help spread the word, that 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 in my mind, you know, it, that's the first step to show value that the organization brings to these smaller players, and then go from there. I, I don't want to jump in and go, oh yeah, you know, pay us X, we'll do Y. I, I think that's the wrong approach. Like Len said, it's all about how can we help the community be aware of each other. And you know, I'm I'm a big fan of. If you are delivering value, the money or the benefits will come in one way, shape, or form. But first, you got to prove that value. 
And the same could be said for membership yep. as well. Because the companies have to spend money to come to us. They have they have to spend money in one way or another. And so how do we incentivize them to spend their money to come to our circle and show us what they've got? I think the, the, the core question that we have to ask everybody, modeling, modeling manufacturers and, and just members and, and just everybody that's a part of the organization and the community is, what, what can IPMS do? How can we help you get more enjoyment out of the hobby and become a better modeler so that you can truly enjoy the hobby more as you get better? Those are the things I think we'd, we'd really like to try to work on. And all of this stuff encompasses that at, at the core. That's a great point. And I think my question wasn't so much, hey, model company, we want you to give us this much sponsorship money. I think it was more maybe, are we doing as good a job in 2021, do you guys think, of making modelers for life? So bringing young people to a national convention, doing makes it, make and takes, and doing doing things that attract younger modelers so that they become enthralled with the hobby and they become equipped to enjoy the hobby for the rest of, of their modeling lives. Kind of more more from that avenue. That, that it's related to my answer previously is where does IPMS need to go? Not where does modeling need to go to make IPMS happy, but IPMS has to have its radar, its long range radar, over the horizon radar on and looking at what is being offered out there commercially and not just in the, the areas that we are used to looking at. And then once we are able to understand where the hobby's going vis-a-vis via these various companies that are out there, then IPMS will be more successful as, a, as an organization in attracting the, the, the younger generation that we always talk about. You know, it, that's, a, it's, I think, a very common discussion across many forums in this within this organization is you know the young modeler how do we keep the organization organization alive going into the future yeah john you brought up earlier on you know talking about wonderfest and some of the things they've done you know having some content that's like wargaming related you know like world of world of tanks displays or maybe uh maybe a theme where people are building you know uh, models from a video game series or something like that yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunities to to bring in these different types of engagements at a national convention. Um, you know, again, we all go back to, and I just have to acknowledge, it takes manpower. So if I could find some individuals that are passionate about that to support it, that's the first step. But I, but I do think there is an opportunity. In my mind, wargaming, in a lot of cases, is scale modeling. I mean, let's be honest, they are scale models. They're building them. They come on a sprue just like everybody else's. So the fact that, you know, it boggles my mind that people don't think they're scale models. Um, so anyway, you know, how do we engage them? How do we bring them in? I've seen shows at a local level have build rooms. I've seen them have wargaming rooms. I've had, I've seen you know, my dad and I, when we were younger, we actually participated in a blind build. So I was blindfolded. My dad instructed me and I built a 48 scale Corsair with super glue only. And it was pretty fun. I didn't stick my hands together, but some other people did. But like those simple little things, like just to bring more social aspects, social, you know, enjoyment into that show, make it unique, make it something that people don't forget. I, I surely don't forget that. I have the trophies behind me on my bookshelf. It was up at Buffalo and the trophy is a blindfolded Buffalo. But, but it's simple things like that, that can really, you know, bring people out of their shell and, and introduce them to other people and make friends for life. And going back to your question, 
anything and everything is possible. I've even seen at a national convention, a Kubel wagon that was driven in and, and parked in, in the convention. I think it all comes down to resources, you know, both space and people. Because, you know, everybody going back to the vehicle, a lot of people like to brag and show their stuff. I think many, you know, if you, oh, if, if I owned a Willys Jeep and somebody, hey, would you put it on display? And if you were, you know, remotely related to modeling, you'd probably say, yeah, let's do it. So I think that's what you'll find is as long as you ask, people are willing to support it. And we can look at other shows, look at other events and understand what are they doing? What's unique about it? And maybe try to incorporate it into a show and see, see what the membership thinks. Nothing set in stone. And, and also I want to state, we don't want to, this isn't going to be a quantum shift in a show. It's, you know, it's all about baby steps, understanding where's the right direction and, and making sure everybody's comfortable with these small changes as we go along with it. I, I to, to pick up on, where John left off there, I think a lot of that is uh, as as the as the parent organization, you you provide resources and information as best you can to your membership, the local level. I, I'll give you an example of of reaching out and and crossing over to to some of the other things there. Even my little group here in the hill country in Texas, I've got two or three guys that are just avid car modelers, and you know they could. They could care less about me trying to organize a trip to San Antonio to go to Stinson Field or something to, you know, to see some old World War II aircraft or something. But man, you 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 tell them, hey, let's 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 set up a table at the uh, car show at Lukenbach and we'll bring our cars over there and set them out. Man, talk about a fantastic way to to uh, to recruit members and and get people turned on to. To building plastic model cars, go set up your table at a at a local car show. I mean, you're talking the same language only in miniature. We used to set up at the uh, Lackland and Kelly Air Force Base uh, uh, air shows when we could still do so, and we had a whole set of uh, ace aircraft that we used to bring and set up. PR value of that kind of stuff is incredible. There's there's kids that walk by that uh, by that table and looked at all that stuff that are that are members of our group today. You, you know, you need to you need to funnel those that kind of information and those kind of resources down to the local level to say, hey, have you thought about this or do you have any opportunities to do that? Just you know, stir the pot. Where it, where is the hobby going commercially? You know, what's being produced? Look at what Wonderfest is doing. You know, they're bringing in uh, personalities, uh, people who don't necessarily build models, but are related to the models. You know, John talked about, you know, a Kubel wagon being brought into a uh, into a show, maybe not getting a Kubel wagon specifically, but what is being built on the table or what is being built, being brought in and placed on the table? And then what are the tangents to those builds? And then look to see, you know, what's affordable, what 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 is reasonable, what's what is doable and bring those to the shows or bring the shows to, like Rob said, you know, we would, uh, Animal Squadron would bring builds to uh, to an air show, see what's going on in the community, and get an IPMS table set up at those locations. And uh, so people would see, oh, you can build models of this. Wow, interesting. Len, sticking with you, how do you think 10 years from now, uh, COVID will have affected our hobby uh, for better or for worse? It has really introduced, at least for me personally, has introduced avenues uh, of interaction that I didn't think uh, weren't weren't uh, on my scope. You know, they weren't visible to me. I knew, you know, I know about Facebook, 
I know about video meetings. I know about, you know, the different social media platforms, but I didn't really put them to use. Didn't really, because we had a meeting, you know, we had a place that we met every month and we, we would all meet up there, which is important. Uh, I'm not saying get away with physical meetings, but COVID has really showed me personally all these other things that we can do with technology that uh, we, uh, without a pandemic will make the, make the hobby grow even more. Yeah, you know, if I'm in 2030, I'm looking back what, you know, what COVID did for the hobby. I think we're going to see long lasting effects of it in a good way. You know, many people, what else are you going to do when you're sequestered at home? I mean, it's it's one thing that we've seen manufacturers say they can't keep kits on the shelf. So I know there's a lot of people out there building models. And, and you know, my hope is that they get introduced to IPMS or another organized modeling type of society and, and decide to join. And, you know, they don't have to join right away, but it's, you know, play, you know, play the long game. Maybe it's several years from now, but I really do believe that 10 years from now, you will see just that the membership to, or, you know, sorry, the hobby to continue to grow. And, and you'll, you'll learn more about people coming out of the woodwork at some point, but I, I think it's COVID has planted the seeds for, uh, you know, a really tr- big transformation in the hobby and, and a really big growth uh, that we can expect to see for years to come, I think. I know I got a lot of models done this last year, <laughs> uh, more, more than I would normally have, have done. So from that standpoint, I, that's probably something that's true across the board. When you got free time on your hands, you know, you're going to sit down and do what you love when you run out of the honeydews anyway. So I, I agree. I think it's it's brought a lot of people. It's it's brought a lot of people to the table that said, "Hey, I tried this and and I really liked it." Regardless of the demographics, if you can reach out to those folks through whatever social media you can get to them on and encourage them to come to a to a, a local show or a regional or or the Nats, if you can get there. The local shows are, are, are a great place to, to learn and to, I, I encourage anybody out there uh, that is interested in the hobby is, you know, go to a local show and, and volunteer to judge, get on a judging team, regardless of whether it's whatever system they use, get on a judging team because that is the absolute best way that you can improve your modeling skills that I can think of. Uh, because you're forced to look at other people's work up close and personal, and the other guys that are judging with you are pointing out things that you know you just you would never necessarily notice if you're just walking around looking at models. So I mean that's always been a bandwagon of mine is to, is to to go and get on a judging team and and learn more about the craftsman the craftsmanship that other people put into their builds that are on the table and ask questions ask questions of the other judges well rob uh, i want to stick with you uh, for one last question here um you know here at the posse we think this is the golden age of this hobby um the the quality of the plastic model kits the availability of subjects uh, Len talked about, you know, vinyl cutting machines, 3D printing machines. It, it, it's really just tremendous as and, and, and much larger and deeper and richer than I think it's ever been. So what role will IPMS play in the expansion of this hobby moving forward? Well, I, I hope it is, uh, I, I hope it's kind of a hub of the information highway regarding scale modeling. I, I'd love to, to see the organization be that group of people or that group of, of 
the modeling community that anybody of any skill level in, in scale modeling can come and ask of IPMS, how do I do this or where do I find that um, or what's the best way to do this and be able to steer those guys and, and girls and kids and, and whoever in the right direction and provide that information for them. John, same question. Yeah, you know, I, I see IPMS as a, as a key enabler to engagement within the hobby, specifically physically. The IPMS Nationals is, is the greatest event for the hobby in the United States that happens once a year. And I, I think it is an excellent opportunity for people to uh, jump out of their shells and, and take a leap and, and go enjoy the hobby with some like-minded individuals. Len, what's your vision of IPMS's role? First, I want to say yeah, I agree with with your assessment that we are in a, a fantastic time with modeling. And I kind of I, I get frustrated when I hear individual voices every now and then saying that you know that the, the demise of the hobby. Um, I think that's rather a myopic view. Uh, they're not looking at the larger trends that we're seeing. It's just not the same hobby that they, you know, you can't buy a dollar kit anymore. You know, unfortunately, the kits are, you know, $100. But, you know, if you look at what you get in that kit, it's not the same as what you had with that dollar kit years ago. Because of that, I think the best opportunity, the two words I want to use is communicating and learning is what IPMS can do in this golden age of plastic modeling is communicating what's out there with its members from, from member to member and then individuals learning from other members, because that is why I participate in everything in IPMS, whether it's a local club meeting or it's a local show or it's a national convention or it's the forum, because I walk away a little bit smarter than when I started. And I learned something that I didn't know uh, when I started that, uh, that meeting or that discussion with somebody. And I take that home and I try it out and I go back to my plateau example I used before is that I find myself on the next higher plateau and I will continue to look to get to the next higher plateau until I don't have a pulse anymore. Well, everybody, uh, um, let's uh, kind of wrap things up. I just want to remind if you are an IPMS member, make sure you vote um, in the election. And uh, just a reminder, we have Len Pilhofer. He's running for IPMS president. We have Rob Booth, who's running for IPMS secretary. And we have John Banani, who's running for the second vice president. So um, appreciate you guys taking your time to discuss these issues with us and coming on the show. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure being here. I look forward to seeing everybody. Hopefully you'll be out in Vegas this summer. I made my reservations. I'll be there. And uh, thank you for, your, for, for having me on tonight. Yep. Thanks for having us. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, you guys. Well, that was a great interview, guys. And remember that IPMS elections wrap up August 31st. So if you're a member of IPMS USA, head over to the website and cast your votes. I already did, so you should too. One other note while we we're talking about IPMS business, remember, if you are going to Nats, you need to make sure your IPMS membership is current. And we strongly encourage you to pre-register in advance. You will save time and avoid standing in lines. Standing in lines sucks. Also, if you are planning to attend, please consider volunteering to help out while you are there. For more details, see the IPMS 
2021 Nationals website. We hope to see you all there, and you'll definitely be seeing me because as of Monday, I have my airplane ticket to Las Vegas. So I am, I've got everything ready to go. Woo! I mean, yeehaw! (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's about it for episode 25. Thanks as always for spending time with the posse whether it's at your bench, in the car, or wherever you listen in. Remember, there is no wrong way to do this hobby as long as you are having fun. So dust off those shelf queens, those hangers on from your shelf of doom, and get them finished. What are you waiting for? Also, just a reminder that you can leave us feedback about this or any of our other episodes over on the Plastic Posse Facebook page, or you can email us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our Posse supporters, and we want to give another shout-out to our two sponsors, Tankcraft, it just looks better on your bench, and Sean's Custom Model Tools, maker of the awesome super sanding blocks. Remember, like Scott said, there's no wrong way to enjoy your hobby. Keep those benches busy, your airbrushes moving paint, and most of all, have fun. Thanks, as always, for joining us for Episode 25. We drop episodes every two weeks, and you can find the Triple P wherever you listen to podcasts. Guys, this is always fun. See you in two weeks. Take care. And most importantly, y'all, yeehaw! Yeah! That would be the Kang, the Conqueror. Kang. So interestingly enough, he did not give his name in the episode. And if you turn on subtitles, which I did, he is sub named He Who Remains, which is also what Miss Minutes referred to him as, which is a separate character in the comic books. There is a character in the Marvel comic books called He Who Remains. He actually is the one that created the TVA. However, he is not Franklin Richards, a.k.a. King the Conqueror. But obviously, since they, they do you know different stuff in the MCU, it's that they just kind of merge the characters. It's really exciting because with time travel and the, the ultimate alternate universes or whatever you want to call it, like I, I was saying earlier, it's just it gives Marvel Studios the freedom just to do whatever the hell they want. And, and I like that. I like weird stuff. That's why I personally love the Doctor Strange movie. Cause that was the first one that was like, dude, this is weird. Like this is trippy. This is not like any of the other ones. And plus Dr. Strange is cool. And Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch whatever is cool. So yeah, I'm re- so really, is this, forward is, to it. is this going to, is this referencing at all? Do you think the Dr. Strange uh, multiverse of madness yes. movie that's yes. going to work into this? Sweet. The reason why we know is they haven't exactly said because earlier this summer they announced that, Jonathan Majors, who plays he who remains in the show, was cast as Kang the Conqueror for Ant-Man in the Wasp Quantumania, which comes out in like 2023. Like it's it's years away. So this is his introduction, we're assuming, to that because he was dressed as Kang the Conqueror. Like that's what he looks like. Actually, he looks more like Immortus, which is another version of Kang the Conqueror. So he's one of these characters in the comic books that has like a bunch of different versions of himself, which he talks about in, in the show where he's like, I met all the other versions of me and we all got along until one of us was like, uh, no, you guys are all 
jerk. So we're just going to kill you all. So he's like that in the comic books too. And you just, he can go to any time frame and show up whenever. And that's part of what makes him so powerful is because you can't really get away from him because he can go wherever he wants to go. And he's probably already been there. So he knows what's going to happen. So we have a Loki season two, or are we going to go right into no, movies again? Loki season two is coming. I mean, they, they showed it right there in the, in the credits, which is awesome. And he, Loki's also going to be in Dr. Strange. I think they announced that it wasn't like an official announcement. I think it was like a, Oh yeah, by the way, uh, you'll see Loki and Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, which after the, after they showed essentially the, the multiverse being born, which was a really cool graphic. I really was into that with the, the timeline splitting and you just see all the filaments going off it. That was really cool. He's going to show up. I mean, he has to. I love how after Avengers Endgame, how a lot of people were saying, that's it. The MCU's done. They're going to run out of ideas. They're, they're not going to use these old characters. Nobody's going to care, but look what they're doing now. I think this is pretty exciting where they're going. And, and the, the most, one of the most interesting parts is, is now the Marvel studios owns fantastic four because they bought all the Fox properties in the comic books. Kang the conqueror is Frank Franklin Richards, who is a descendant of Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. So there's another way they can work in the fantastic four, which I'm personally not a big fan of. I don't, the character's okay. The one thing the fantastic four does have is awesome villains like Galactus and like silver surfer who then, who becomes a hero. Like they all come from the fantastic four. Cause that was like, the trippy Jack Kirby 1960s nonsense where they're like going into space and like all this crazy stuff is happening. The one that's blowing my mind is the Sony and MCU collaboration on the Spider-Man that's going to have all three of the Spider-Man, all the villains. And now I'm even hearing that Hugh Jackman might be doing a cameo in it as a Wolverine. Yeah. Now. And see that also ties into with the Spider-Man movie because it, again, it's the worst kept secret in Hollywood that the other Spider-Men are going to be in this movie, even though Sony's like, no, no, what are you, ta- no, what are you talking about? No, we haven't said that. <laughs> but then, you know, you read reports like they're all seen near the set. Like, oh, no, they're just all randomly hanging out in Atlanta. Because I'm sure that's where like Andrew Garfield wants to go hang out. Oh, I'm just going to go hang out in Atlanta because why not? Oh, they're also filming a Spider-Man movie here. What a weird coincidence. Huh. <laughs> Did any of you guys watch Black Widow? Yes. Yeah. Gosh darn it. I, I All right. It. So that's the next I liked, it. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I liked it too. I thought um, it was worth it. My my yeah, my only complaint was it's low stakes yeah. just because you essentially know what's gonna happen. Because it takes place obviously Black Widow's still alive, she's dead. So other than that, it was really cool. And David Harbour as Red Guardian was awesome. Because yeah. that dude is that dude is so great. And he was hilarious as that character. He's definitely comic relief and he does it so good. It's definitely, it was definitely fun. Yeah. I can't contribute shit to this conversation. So I'm just sitting back taking Dude, notes. I'm, t- I'm telling you if it, 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 it still to this day boggles my mind that I, that we saw Avengers in game. I, I still can't get over the fact that I, I went to a movie theater and I watched Captain America Thor and Iron Man fight Thanos in a movie with other people. Like I, I read these comic books when I was a kid and I was like, there's no way that a, this is ever going to be cool or B they're going to make a movie about it. And if they did that, it would be freaking good. So that scene in Endgame is like 
I would say top five, top three scenes of any movie in all of time. When Falcon goes on your, what is it, on your right? On, on your, your left. left. On your and left. then, the, like, it just happens. It's like, you just want to go do something. Like, you're, you're ready. You get jazzed. I'm actually bummed I wasn't in one of those crowded opening night theaters with Screaming. all the I was. <laughs> I was. Dude. That would have been awesome. I'm telling you right now. I mean, this, my favorite scene still is when Thanos has Thor on the ground and he's pushing Stormbreaker into his chest and Mjolnir picks up off the ground yeah. and, you know, flies and, and you, you're like, oh, like, oh, shit, Thor's going to grab Mjolnir. He's going to have both. He's going to go crazy. No, psych. It's Captain America. And I'm like, holy shit, I just watched freaking Captain America pick up Thor's hammer and beat the shit out of Thanos with it. Like, Mike, the theater, <laughs> it was like you see in those videos, like my theater screamed and I was one of them. I was like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe this is actually happening. 